Welcome to Question and Answer Part 2 by... God. <laughs> and action! <laughs> All right. Um, so we are continuing our series. So we're... we're uh, we're continuing our series, You Asked For It. Uh, it's a question and answer thing. Uh, we did our first one two weeks ago, and we're doing our second one now, and then two weeks from now we'll finish our last section. Um, tonight we're really going to be focusing on um, theology, the doctrines of, of, in particular, Protestant Christianity. Um, you guys submitted a whole bunch of really good questions, so Pastor Raymond and I are going to tag team on these questions talking about sort of an, an overview of like the differences between Protestantism and other uh, religions, etc. So, And with that introduction, we put you to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hang on, I've got to get my Bible. Sorry. <laughs> I know Can you save it? I was just gonna ask Pastor Dog. What? Pastor Dog. Oh. Dogs. Cool. What would you do? What did you say? Antonio doesn't even like dogs. I do. Why would you say that? I've heard a lot of people say that. They're like, yeah, Antonio doesn't like dogs. You just interact. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. You get kind of annoyed. What? You were fine with my dog when I brought him. Yeah. yeah. What are you basing this on? I don't know. <laughs> okay. A just... lot of like past. So here was the question. How were people saved before Christ came on earth? How did people before Jesus came, how did they become children of God? How did they get into God's family? First we have to start with the fact that we're not born into God's family. Okay? Jesus himself said, we're born outside of God's family. That doesn't mean we have no value. We have so much value that Jesus came to die for us. But none of us, nobody, is born inside of God's family. When God created us, he created us with the ability to choose a relationship with him. He had to do that because he had to, wanted to have creatures who would genuinely love him, who would genuinely be, want to be in a relationship with so he gave us the capacity to say, yes, I want to be in relationship with you, or no, I want to be God of my own life. Adam and Eve made the decision, no, we're going to be God of our own life. And every generation since then has inherited that from them. And if you and I had been there, we would also have said, no, I want to be God of my own life. So understand that about human nature. We don't want anybody to run our lives. We want to be God of our own lives. Okay? So... All of us are born outside of the family of God. There's no one who is born automatically inside of God's family. But God is love, and God wants us back, and he wants us to come back into his family as a choice where we say we want to be part of your family. This is not a sermon, so you can stop me at any time, and I'll ignore you, but never mind. <laughs> Let's stop. All right, so there was a moment in history when God made it possible for us to re-enter his family. 
And what he did was that on the cross, Jesus Christ, who was God, who became a man, took upon himself the full responsibility for the sin of all humanity. And when he died on the cross, he took the full punishment for the sin of every single human being who has ever or ever will live. And because he took the full punishment, God is able to forgive our sins because they've been punished in Christ. Are you guys with me there so far? Okay. But God will not force his way into our lives. He made us free to say yes or no. He will not force his way into our lives. And the only way after Christ that we get into God's family is by saying yes to God. I want you to be my God. And we do it simply by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Up until the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your faith is in you. You're, you're the one who's going to save you. You're the one who's going to make yourself into a child of God. When you hear who Jesus is, that he is God who became a man, fully God and man, who took the full punishment for our sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, and offers the gift of eternal life. The minute you say, yes, I want that gift, at that moment you become born again and become a child of God. The moment you were conceived, the sperm and the egg came together. And as the sperm and the egg came together, they unwrapped and rewrapped, and you came into existence. DNA of the father, DNA of the mother, unwrapped, rewrapped, and you came into existence. With me there? So you were born a physical being with a soul, only one who has ever lived. At the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, one more miracle happens, and that is that his spirit comes into you and wraps himself into your soul for eternity. I made that up just to describe it, okay? That's not in the Bible, but that's my way of describing what happens. So you guys with me so far? If you've never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, don't waste another day of your life. God has got a plan for you. He's, he's created you for a specific reason, and no one else can fulfill the plan he has for you. You're as unique as a snowflake. Is. You're, you're the only one of you who will ever exist. And if you've never yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, please let us know. That's what we live for. Absolutely live for is the ability to, to see you take that step into God's family. Okay, guys with me? All right. So that answers the question from the time Christ died onward. If you want to become a child of God, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. What about all these poor guys back here? He hadn't come yet. Well, the beauty about it is that God stands outside of time. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, <coughs> we're told this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man. By faith Enoch was taken from this life. By faith Noah. By faith Abraham. And so what we're hearing here is the names of guys who lived back here. Abraham, Noah, all kinds of people who lived back here long before Christ came. But God declared them to be righteous because God knew, God stands outside of time, that there would be a time when Christ would die to take the punishment for their sins. And so God applies the death of Christ to us after that point in history. And God applied the death of Christ to the people ahead of beforehand, before they came along. What was required of them was simply what, what the book of Hebrews says, 
is to believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so it was a matter of by faith back then they put their faith in, in, in him. Does this answer the question a little bit? So I've got to tell you a story. Did I tell the story? It doesn't matter. I tell my stories all the time, but this is a great <laughs> story. Okay. Years ago in Philadelphia, I met a little lady. We were at a meeting, and this little lady looked after our baby girl for us. So it's kind of nice. Okay. So after we'd handed over the baby, somebody said, how many of you handed over a child to the little lady downstairs? Went, yeah, yeah, cute little lady. He said, let me tell you a story about that little lady. He said, there was a witch doctor in the jungles of the Amazon who believed that there is a real God. Now, a witch doctor had all kinds of fetishes. He had multiple gods. And this witch doctor came to the realization, these aren't gods aren't real. We made them. There is a living God, and he called him the living God. There's a living God. And he said, I want to know the living God. So to the horror of his, of his uh, tribe, he took his fetishes and he burnt them. And to them, it was like, oh, the gods are going to get us. They're going to kill us. Nothing happened. Weeks later, no, it wasn't weeks. It was months later, a little lady, the same little lady, arrived in their village in a dugout canoe. And she knew one sentence in their language. And the sentence was this. I brought you a message from the living God. And that, that uh, guy said, this is, the guy said, that, that's for me. Now it took her months to learn the rest of the language, to be able to talk, tell him about Jesus Christ. When, he told, when she told him about Jesus Christ, he put his faith in Christ, and then he began to convert other members of, his, of the tribe until they became followers of Jesus Christ as well. Then, while we were there in that meeting, a message came from the missionaries. The missionaries went were teaching the tribes. So a lot of the people, not all of them, a lot of people became Christians. The uh, missionaries taught them about the fact that Jesus said we're to take the message of the gospel to the world, to tell others about him. And the tribe said, oh, just like you came from America to tell us, we're supposed to go and tell others. And the missionaries were, yeah, you've got it. So this, they had a meeting of their own, and the next day they came to the missionaries and said, okay, we're going. <laughs> but the missionaries didn't listen to what they said. They said, we're going. And the whole tribe went, <laughs> they all took off in different directions to go and take the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The missionaries were left alone in this village and had to move themselves because it was all wow. gone. And so on this side of the cross, our job is to tell people about Christ and to invite them to believe in him. This side of the cross, God was able to declare these people children, his children because he stands outside of time and he saw that his son would die. So you've got a whole sermon in answer to one question. Any follow-up questions? <coughs> I put them to sleep. I think it makes sense. No, I think it, you were just thorough. Yeah. Okay, good. Thanks. That's, that's so kind. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, yeah, accurate. Like, I like, had questions popping up, and then you kept answering, so I was just like... <laughs> um, the uh, addendum to that question was uh, how did they earn their salvation? And Raymond touched on it a little bit. Um, but that is a good point, that uh, there's nothing that we can do or ever will do <laughs> to earn our salvation. The, the salvation that we have is completely by grace alone and by faith alone. There's nothing that we can, we can't take the Ten Commandments and go, I'm going to live this out for the rest of my life uh, because it is impossible. Um, we simply can't do it. And people have tried. Um, and they have failed 
Only one person has done it, and that's Jesus Christ. So it's a good point to, to think that, okay, these, the people who um, are saved now on this side of the cross, and even those before, didn't do it by being perfect, right? Especially the ones before. They, they're, they're counted as righteous because of their faith, not because Scripture doesn't say they counted as righteous because they follow all of God's commandments perfectly. That's not what it says. It says they are counted um, as righteous because of their faith. Um, but on this side of eternity, we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Nothing at all. And that's good, that's a, that's good news. <laughs> Meaning that we don't have to continue to do anything um, to keep our salvation too. That's what that means. So that leads us um, into the, one of the questions, which is about Roman Catholicism uh, and other religions, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Christianity. Uh, the, basically, the question is, what are some of the main differences? Um, and the main differences between Protestant Christianity and all those other ones, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, is that every single one of those um, other religions purport that you can do things to earn your salvation. That it is possible for you to, to get into heaven by doing good deeds. Whereas us Protestants, the ones who separated from the Roman Catholic Church, um, say that it's a complete 100% gift from God. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to lose it. So that is by grace alone, by faith alone. So some of the main differences are actually kind of huge. Um, and I have a whole list of things. Um, like, for example, uh, in Roman Catholicism, they have uh, bishops, popes, cardinals, and priests. Um, and the biblical teaching uh, is that Christ is the head, and he rules the whole church. Um, whereas in Roman Catholicism, um, you have the priests as what's called an altar Christus, means that they are an alternative Christ. So they are able to accept confession. Uh, they are able to absolve people from sins. Uh, and they are able to interpret scripture perfectly. That's what the Roman Catholic, Catholic Church says, that the Pope is able to interpret scripture, um, and what he says, whatever the Pope says, is gospel truth. Um, and that's the same with Jehovah's Witness. A, a lot of these other religions purport that the, the Bible that we have now is corrupted, and therefore the people that started those religions uh, have a special revelation from God. And they go, this is, this is what um, God told me. Like, that's, that's true for Robert Smith, um, or Joseph Smith, sorry. That's the guy from The Cure. What? <laughs> huh? Joseph Smith, he's the one who started Mormonism. He received this revelation from God, and he, they said, uh, purportedly Jesus and, and Father God appeared to him in the woods and said, you need to, to, um, to tell everyone that the Bible that you have is corrupted. Um, there's all kinds of wacky stuff with Mormonism um, that we can get into. If you guys are interested, you guys, we've talked about a little bit about it before. Um, Jehovah's Witness is sort of the same. Um, they believe that they're the only Christians, right? So the old joke is, is you have a whole bunch of... Uh, well, it's, it's a universalist joke that I won't get into. But <laughs> anyways, Jehovah's Witnesses say that they're the only true Christians. Um, they're neither Protestant nor Catholic. They are their own thing. Um, they also don't do things like celebrate holidays or birthdays. Um, and they also don't believe in the Trinity. Like we talked about the Trinity last session. Um, they, they believe in what's uh, called modalism. Uh, they believe that God 
Um, same with Mormonism too. They believe that God and Jesus um, are two parts of the same thing and that God became Jesus and there's no God the Father anymore and he's only Jesus and all this other crazy stuff. So. Now that's a good way to put it. What, the crazy stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there are other differences with um, Roman, Catholicism in, Roman Catholicism in particular, like their sacraments. Um, they believe that whenever they do the communion, as opposed to how we do it, uh, that it's called transubstantiation. I'm using a lot of big terms that you guys don't need to know. But basically, they believe that when they bring out the, the bread and the wine, that it's actually Jesus's body. And the wine is actually, it turns into Jesus's blood. And that it's almost like they're, they're re-crucifying him or they're redoing his sacrifice every time they take communion. Yeah. My, my um, other youth pastor's um, uh, fiance, she used to go to like a Catholic school and they used to take communion. Mm -hmm. And if you were, if you like dropped a little bit of bread because they consider it to be like the physical body, if, if it was dropped on the floor, like if other people dropped it, they would have to go up and like eat the crumbs that fell on the floor. Like pick it up from the ground? You also have to be a part of the church to take part in the communion. To take communion, you have to go through their rites and passages. Whereas in Protestantism, a lot of churches do have membership and they do have something similar to what um, the Catholics call, um, what is it called? What's it called? Confirmation. confirmation. Other Protestant churches have confirmation too. But basically, it's teaching the basic doctrines of the church. Um, and it's the same in Protestantism. You know, you shouldn't take communion if you're not a true believer. But with Catholicism, you have to actually be a true member of the Roman Catholic Church before you can take communion. Um, the night that Jesus instituted communion was in the middle of a feast, the Passover feast, where everything had symbolism. There was a, a bowl of water, uh, salt water that represented the tears that they cried when they were in Egypt. There was a, a bowl that had fruit uh, pureed inside of it that represented the mud that they were supposed to use using bricks. So there was all kinds of symbolism. So when Jesus took his bread and said, this is my body, they don't, they don't go, oh dear God, his body's out there, eat my body. They understood <laughs> this is symbol. This is not really my body. This is actually just a, a representative for my body. Same thing with the wine. They knew it represented. So that's why we come at it from that perspective. Yeah, if you ever look into the, the rites and passages of, of um, the Jewish religion, everything that they do is steeped and soaked in symbolism. Um, but I think Catholics take it a, a step further. And the, the main difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, which is what this church is, it's a Protestant church, um, is simply by the means of salvation. For the Catholic Church, you have to do good deeds throughout your whole life. You have to continue to do good deeds. Otherwise, your salvation is um, in, in jeopardy. Whereas the Protestants believe that your salvation can never be in jeopardy because Jesus paid it all and he did it perfectly. Um, that, that, we can, um, that we can live life uh, and we will still stumble and we'll still fall, but our salvation is perfect. Um, whereas that's why you have certain dogmas and doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church of prayers for the dead. Um, most of my culture, Guam, 
they're, everyone's Catholic. Like it's like 98% Catholic or what have you. Uh, and I grew up going to what's called rosaries, which is every time a member of our family dies, we'd have to do a rosary and we'd have to sit in some house um, and repeat a prayer for three days after they're dead. And what essentially you're doing is you're giving petition to the Virgin Mary, Jesus's mom, um, and also to God to pray and absolve their sins so that they can get to the final heaven because they also believe in a concept of purgatory in which if you have all of these sins in your life before you die, you have to work them off in purgatory, um, which is not biblical. Has, scripture doesn't talk about that at all. Um, and a lot of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church uh, revolve around um, tradition and scripture, right? So it's not like, like Protestants believe that it's scripture alone that you can know everything about God. Well, with the Roman Catholics, it's scripture plus tradition. What have we been doing uh, in addition to what God has said? And then on top of that, you have whatever the Pope says. So the Pope has the ability to interpret scripture infallibly because he is the, the direct descendant from Peter who supposedly started the church. Um, so therefore he has this direct, 100% direct line with God. So whatever he says can be right. And I was listening to this thing about what the Pope said recently um, about the LGBT and all this civil union and stuff like that. And this guy made this comment. He was saying that if, if this Pope was speaking to Pope's four or five generations ago, those older popes would burn this new pope at the stake <laughs> for what that pope is teaching. And they're saying that the, that the idea that the pope, any pope at any time is infallible, makes no sense knowing that those, these people would be at odds with one another. You know, so if I'm a pope and supposedly everything that I say comes from God, but it contradicts everything else um, other popes have said, then, you know, the whole direct line that they purport to have isn't really true. In this church, Tony and I are the popes. <laughs> <laughs> There's two popes yes. right now popes in the Papa. same way. So just call us Papa. Papa, yeah. So wait, so the pope is from a direct line of Peter? That's what they purport. They, they, they believe that when, when, when Jesus said, this is the rock in which I'm establishing the church, uh, rock, Cephas, is that how you pronounce it? Me um, is another name for Peter. Um, so they're saying that because Jesus said that, I'm going to establish the church on you, Peter, uh, uh, this rock, then therefore everything from Peter on, he was the first bishop of Rome, from Peter on, um, those people have this divine uh, thing directly from Jesus, but it's an interpretation error. Didn't Jesus tell Peter, get behind me, Satan, when he said something? <laughs> Yes. yes. Yeah. And that, and that was after he said, mm -hmm. on, on, on this rock, yeah. So what Jesus actually said, he said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, you're the promised prophet, priest, and king, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's what I'm going to build my church on. Everybody who <laughs> recognizes what you've just said, that's what I'm going to build on. And he used it, that's the rock I'm going to build my church on. And that's where they took the... They, and it was centuries later that they went back and said... Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. They, it lines they, up. They, they try to say, well, how can we claim that the lead of the church now is direct 
descended from Peter, and they went all the way back on. Oh, there it is. So they misinterpreted this the scripture. And if you remember from my sermon on Sunday, Peter himself, that same Peter uh, that we're talking about in the Gospels is the same Peter um, that talked about a living stone. It talked about how Jesus is the cornerstone. He never, he didn't say, it's me. (laughs) I'm the cornerstone. No, he was pointing everyone to Jesus. It's very interesting. Um, So this is, it's like uh, RC is what I'm going to... Shorten Roman Catholicism too from now on. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask about um, the, how does how does the Protestant Church treat the um, the verse about faith without works is dead in terms of like what do yeah. you do when you see a believer who doesn't mm-hmm. like who isn't producing fruit mm-hmm. or for example like the verse that's like there will be people who pro- proclaim prophecy in my name but I don't know them. Mm-hmm. Well, the first one about James, uh, we went over in our series in James, yeah. and I think I like really went over that one. Or, um, but for yeah. everyone else's benefit. Yeah, can I just add something on? Because I know that yeah. you're saying it's like, it's not that works are required as an entrance fee to our faith, but it's it's a byproduct of our faith. Mm-hmm. But like, what happens when there's a believer, someone who's accepted Christ, who isn't producing fruit? Well, that's that's when you get into the idea that. You know, Jesus said that you will know them by their fruit. Um, you will, people will know you by our, your love, etc. If you're not producing fruit, then therefore you perhaps are not a true believer. But we're not the ones who to judge it. Exactly. It's aimed at that person themselves. Yeah. So you say you say you're a believer, and there's no evidence of this in your in your life. You need to question where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, do you genuinely believe? I guess my question is like if somebody starts to lead a life that becomes fruitless is it is their salvation still maintained not that they can't earn their salvation back or not earn it back but like easily enter back into that by repenting and turning away but is is there a period where they are not living in Christ I I mean take a look at the the story in Luke I I mentioned it a week ago or so the prodigal son right Um, was there fruit produced at all in that story of the prodigal son, I, I mean, he was he was a Jew, like mixing it up with pigs, yeah. <laughs> like the worst of the worst. There's no fruit at all in that. Um, but what that story is, I mean, it was preceded by the lost coin, the parable of the lost coin. Um, it, it's it's what Pastor Raymond is saying is is absolutely right. It's not our job to judge whether or not um, that person is producing fruit or, or whether or not they're a true believer. Um, our job really is to pray for them and to support them and to continue continue to love them and uh, that's like a a huge thing and it's one of the questions that we're going to go over in the next session like what do you do when you know someone in your life isn't living the most godly life like should you just be like all right we're going to cast you away um, or do we continue to to support you and help you and I think depending on what it is um you should continue to support. There is a time, there is biblical precedent for casting away. James says, if you see a brother fall into sin, go to him and turn him back. Because in so doing, you may save his life. Mm-hmm. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 describes the fact that there were Christians who were abusing the communion table. They were actually abusing one another. And as a result, Paul says, some of them got sick and some of them died. 
Now, that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It's just God went, uh-uh, I'm not going to let my children do this. Hebrews chapter 12 warns that God disciplines his children. And the ultimate discipline, maybe, he'll just say, all right, you're done. You're done. <laughs> That's but, but be careful. Christians die all the time. So as soon as a Christian dies, you don't want to go, oh, I wonder what Raymond did. Yeah. <laughs> that God killed him. So in a case like that, if a person's a genuine believer, Hebrews 12 says they're not going to get away with it. God will start. When God is ready, he'll start to discipline them. And the discipline can take the, the form of scourging. That's the word it's used there. Really tough that God will discipline them in order to bring them back. He's a father and he wants his children to live, walk with him. Yeah, my, my question was less, I definitely agree with that. Like, my question was less about, like, what do I do if I see someone living a life of unrepentant sin versus what would be the personal effects for someone? Because I know that it's, it's difficult to Oh, could they lose the their salvation? Yeah, of just like, if somebody's leading a life of unrepentant sin, even if they've said that they've accepted Christ, but they aren't really repenting of their sin, like, the, the Bible demands that they do. But. If we can keep our salvation by repentance and we keep our salvation by coming back and saying, I'm sorry, in a sense, it means we save ourselves. So salvation is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. And once we're saved in Christ, God doesn't back out of it. It's a covenant. So even if a person drifts away, that's where they're in, in discipline. And if they, if they never come back, God will, they lose the reward for eternity. Can you imagine that? We're going to spend eternity using and enjoying the rewards God has given us for how we've lived for him in this life. And somebody who's living like that, first of all, could be just going through discipline. That God's just letting them take the, the natural consequences of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But they're also losing out on reward. And that, those rewards are going to be so tangible that when we get them, we're going to be going... I wish I could have done better. Yeah, Yeah. so the answer to your question is there are, um, there is detriment to someone living a life apart from God. But if they are are believers, if they are truly saved, if they're part of the elect, um, they can't lose their salvation. They'll have less. Like, like I always say, I'll be, I'll be happy just to sweep the, the, the floors in heaven, right? Like, it could be that. It could end up being a janitor. I guess, yeah, what's the scripture for, that supports kind of like the idea we not, can't lose The idea of not losing yeah. salvation? Jesus onwards. For, who, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And he said in John six forty seven, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, the person who believes in me has everlasting life. He didn't say has tentative life. Mm-hmm. or intermittent life. He says, has everlasting life. Mm-hmm. Uh, John writes, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, I'll tell you, I babysat a little boy once who had been in the, um, uh, what do you call it when they, they moved from family to family? Oh, foster, uh, foster? Foster care. And he was five years old and this family adopted him. And he was their child. But every night, he folded his clothes and put them away. He washed his bicycle and put it away. He was terrified that his parents were going to send him back into the system. And they, they said, what do we do? How do we help him to get that through? And many Christians live that way. Oh, dear God, if I do something wrong, God's going to kick me out of his family. And they had, they had to battle to help this little guy understand, no, we'll never kick you out of our family at all. 
I've done that to my son, but that's different. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Somewhat. Yeah. Okay, so um, to distill all of the different stuff, because we can get real granular and, and microscopic with the differences between all these other false religions, because I do believe that in like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses um, are false religions. With Roman Catholicism, Pastor Raymond and I agree that you can be Roman Catholic and go to an RC church and, you know, do all this stuff and still be saved. Like, I would not be surprised. I would be overjoyed to see a ton of Catholics in heaven. Uh, we always say that you can be a true believer in the Roman Catholic Church, but not because of your faith in, the Roman, Catholic, uh, in Roman Catholicism, but in spite of it. Um, so there are a lot of true believers in the Roman Catholic faith that are probably there simply because of tradition. A lot of my family in Guam, I know for a fact are true believers. I see the fruit in their life. They're amazing people. Um, but they, you know, go to mass, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's really, so, some, sometimes God pulls, pulls people out of that and opens their eyes. Sometimes he doesn't. So the, the main things is that these other religions are worshiping a different God, especially in the case of uh, the Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism or Seventh-day Adventists, um, these kinds of people where they, the, the, the people who started the religion um, <laughs> supposedly get revelation from God and nothing shall be added to his word. That's what scripture says. Um, so anyone who tells you, I've received revelation from God, and you ask the question, is this really from God? Like, this is new revelation. And they go, yes. You go, heretic. <laughs> like, I'm going to burn you at the stake because this is, this is not of God at all. Everything that God wants to reveal to you about himself and about his character is found in Scripture. It's a work of the Holy Spirit and it's supernatural. Um, so anyone who tells you anything besides what is found in here, you know that it's wrong. And this is what Christ wants us to do. Jesus wants us to, to take anything that a pastor says, anything that any spiritual leader says, and he wants us, what it says, to be like the Bereans. The Bereans are the ones who, who was, were listening to the things that Jesus was saying, and they went off into their own little enclaves, and they searched the scriptures to make sure that everything he was saying lined up with the word. That's what he wants. Yeah? Um, I, just, I just wanted to ask, like, where, um, which, which verse does it say that Revelation chapter 1. Let me just, before we go to that, let me just read this passage that goes along with what Tony's saying. This is 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, okay, and what Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Islam, um, uh, all of these uh, other religions that claim to be from Christianity, they all deny that Jesus Christ is God. And that's the break right there. Uh, John writes this, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. And so that's one way to test them. Do you believe that Jesus is God? 
And they'll go, well, no. The minute they say, well, no, <laughs> you know, there's the yeah. wrong ones. So, and then Revelation, um, when, when God appeared. What, what was that verse? Sorry. That's 1 John 4, okay. verses 1 through 3. Um, the last book in the Bible is the book of Revelation. And when um, Jesus appears to John, um, he said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was, who is, and is to come. And he said to them in the verse 19, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. In other words, past, present, and future. Then at the end of the book, it says, if anyone adds to the words of this prophecy, God will take away from him his, his position in the book of life. And, and would, he would lose his, uh, his place. This, um, I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so the book of Revelation, which was the last one written, shuts the door so that there's no more ongoing revelation from God. There's no, no longer any need for ongoing direct revelation. This is kind of going back, but what is Islam? Oh, Islam? You're asking yeah, about Islam? Yeah. <laughs> That's a big topic. Um, essentially, what what Islam believes is that they they believe that Christians are polytheists, meaning we believe in more than one God because they don't understand the Trinity. Uh, they believe that God is only one and that the prophet Muhammad um, has the correct revelation from God. They are derived from um, the... Jewish religion, essentially. Um, so when they, they, in their scriptures, they mention Jesus, but they don't believe him to be God. They believe him to be simply prophet, just like what Pastor Raymond said. All these other religions, the Christianity is the unique one that says Jesus is God. Everyone else denies it. Yeah. Interesting thing is, Jesus died for Muhammad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jesus came back from the dead. Muhammad is still in his grave. Yes. Jesus died for Buddha. Buddha died. Buddha still in his grave. Mm -hmm. He didn't ever come back. Joseph Smith, Mormons, mm -hmm. in his grave, he died. Mm -hmm. Mary Baker Eddy, in her, in her grave, dead. They, all of these saviors died and were buried and they, none of them came back. So it's kind of like, hmm, which one am I going to believe? You know? There's a question way in the back. It's just making me think of like, I feel like I'm probably missing something, but I mean, we were just talking about how there's no way to your salvation in heaven, but then I was just talking about how if anyone takes away from the words of the Bible, then it gets taken out of the life, and that kind of sounds like losing your salvation. No, that's that's Jesus Himself warning anybody who adds to the book and warning that, and He is there. He's the judge. So in a, in a case like that, it would be the judge. But remember that the person who adds to this the, the, of this book, words of this book, is not a Christian. It's not a believer. And that the whole book of life idea is, that's a whole other subject. It's a fun subject, but we can get back to it. Yeah. What are Seventh-day Adventists? Seventh-day Adventists are not our, okay, they're, they're close to being what we are, except that they, they keep a lot of the law. They choose which parts of the law they keep. And one of those is that they worship on the Sabbath, the seventh day. But they're a very legalistic group of people. They, there's a lot of laws that they... And they keep 
certain laws, but they don't keep all the laws. And as a result, they, they muddy the gospel. Lots of churches, I grew up as a Presbyterian, Presbyterian church completely muddied the gospel. You, they, as far as I knew growing up, the way you become saved is you've got to live a good life. And, what and be about, baptized. Oh, and be baptized, yeah, be christened. But, so I was, they, they, it was totally muddied. So when I told my grandmother that I'd become a Christian, she was angry. It was like, well, what the heck were you yesterday, a Buddhist? You know, she didn't understand. No, you become a Christian not by keeping the Ten Commandments. In fact, when I told her, and I know I'm going to heaven, she went, oh, I can't believe you said that. How dare you say that? You don't know. Nobody wow. can know. That's interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I had one more question. Um, I talked to this like, dude that came through the drive-thru. He said he went to church at the Church of God. And I was like, oh, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's the church that's like in the Bible. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Church of God in Christ. That was called. Like, yeah, a lot of people. That's that's a whole other thing. So the other question is, how many different versions of Christianity are there? Um, and you really have to do a lot of research into this because there are some some denominations, actual Christian denominations, meaning they stem from a true the true gospel. Whereas like Seventh-day Adventists, like, like Pastor Raymond says, they're really close, but they're really not there. Um, but Presbyterians, I believe, are true believers. They have the true gospel. They muddy things some up. The them. things that, we, well, yeah, some of them. Um, because there are many different um, branches of, of Presbyterians in itself, right? So I think that the number is like something like 30,000. Some people say it's over 100,000 different denominations of Christianity. Um, that just means that some people like to divide over things within scripture. So, for example, uh, with baptism, right? Presbyterians believe that once you baptize, once you are become a believer, you baptize your entire family, and therefore your entire family is saved. It talks about it in Acts. That's what they like to go to. It says you, you get baptized, and you and your entire household will be saved, right? Um, what that causes is for people like, like Raymond to grow up believing and, and his relatives to believe that, oh, you're in our family. We all go to the Presbyterian church, so therefore you are saved. It's not a personal relationship. It's a familial one. You don't inherit a faith in Jesus Christ. That's not something that you get from your parents. Like it's not in your DNA. It is a personal choice and it's a personal um, salvation. So... There's, there's all kinds of, uh, of different stuff that, that we branch off of, um, but there are some major differences. So that's why you need to, you need to, to, to like read up on this. The Church of God, I think, is what, what this person is talking about. I think those are the people who have zero instruments in their worship service. Yeah, that's, or, the, that's the Church of Christ non-instrumental. And then there's Church of Christ instrumental. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Church That's of, what it's called. Church of God, yeah. Oh yeah. That's the crazy. Church of God used to be a cult. And the son of the founder, the son of the founder studied the Bible and he realized, hey, we're teaching a lie. And so they split the church. And so it's hard to know. Is he yeah. still part of the cult or is he part of the, the new? Let me use an illustration just to help you not be too disturbed about it. Let my ring represent the absolute truth of the Bible that Jesus is God, that he died to take the punishment for our sins. He was buried, he rose from the dead. That's the essence of, of the true message of the Bible, okay? So God wants that message to be taken to the world. What happens is that as we take it into the world, 
human beings tend to start building walls or doctrines around it. And so we slowly begin to bury it. For example, communion. Communion is we eat the bread, drink the cup, and it just represents Jesus. But then they begin to say, is it the body and blood of Jesus? Is it truly the body and blood of Jesus? And see what happened is that over time, all kinds of doctrines, all kinds of practices, all kinds of rules and regulations grow around the essence of Christianity. And so what God says is, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to break it out. And so it breaks out and starts again and breaks out and starts again. Roman Catholic Church had completely buried the Bible, completely buried the gospel. They wouldn't even allow people. They killed people who translated the Bible into English. They would not allow anybody to read the Bible for themselves because they wanted the power. They didn't want to give up their power. And so as a result, God gave God a man by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther read the Bible and went, uh-oh, we got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And so Martin Luther came. He didn't intend to, by the way. They kicked him out. That started the Protestant church. And so that's been happening all down through history. When, I, when you say Presbyterian, the Presbyterians I grew up in, don't really believe in the Bible. They don't really believe in Jesus. I don't know what the heck they believe anymore, but that's, they don't believe in the Bible. So it's kind of like, eh, they're just a social organization that has a religious name. Yeah, a lot of denominations have also unhitched themselves from Scripture. Um, like the Presbyterian Church, For I don't want to pick on them, but there are many branches of the Presbyterian Church. And if you are up on this and read stuff or know the news, you know that Sometimes they have meetings, and then the result of those meetings is that they have another split. <laughs> so they're, you know, oh, we're the Presbyterian Church USA, or we're the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, or we're the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. So they have new names, uh, and they branch off because we don't believe what those people believe. Again, it's like the, the vines growing over the heart of, of what the gospel really is, and they're, they're starting to, to do infighting. But sometimes... In the case of, of, of actual scriptural stuff, sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Um, the Good Shepherd Church, for example, they're an Anglican church, whereas the main worldwide Anglican church is very liberal, and they don't believe the same things that Good Shepherd believes. So they're one of the Anglican churches who have separated from the main Anglican denomination because they said, we don't believe what they're doing, so we're going to form our own. Yeah. So it's like it's... It gets complicated, and it's what happens when humans get involved with this thing that is supposed to be perfect and beautiful, is we tend to complicate things, and we tend to divide over little things sometimes. So the question is, what are we? Mm -hmm. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what we are. We're part of a movement that, that noticed that what happens is that as churches organize and get together in an organization, the organization eventually strangles and kills the church, kills the real thing. And so a movement started here back in the 1930s where churches began to say, we're not going to form an organization. We're simply going to stay true to the Bible and we're going to fellowship with one another and with other churches that agree with us. And so that way, if one church starts to move away from the Bible or do something else, they go liberal, it's like, bye-bye. You don't take us all with you. So there's two movements, the Bible Church Movement and the Evangelical Free Church Movement, and they're both movements. In other words, it's not an organization at all. It's, it's, you're, you're left free. Each church has to, has to be sure that it stays true to the Bible. And it's a very, very healthy system. So there's nobody above us except Jesus. 
we do have elders who govern our church, but that's another subject. Mm -hmm. so, did that answer a question you weren't even asking? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can get easily lost in the details of the differences between denominations. Um, but if you ever get interested in, in world religions, um, you'll quickly find out um, that the main difference is the, the worth and deity of Jesus and what that means for that particular religion. And I think the definition of cult is that it is unorthodox uh, from Scripture, meaning that it strays away from that. Um, and it's usually led by men, <laughs> uh, and they retain all the power. So, yeah, let's not get lost in, in all the details. If you have specific questions about uh, a particular religion, ask me about it, and I'll brush up on it because there's so many. <clears throat> um, it's difficult to... To, to give a, a, a general overview on so many uh, of the ones that were asked. So, yeah. Next question. Uh-oh. I was <laughs> hoping we weren't getting up. <laughs> so here's the question. Are women pastors biblical? Should women push to be leaders within the church? This is such a fun subject, okay? So here's where we start. What's our basis for answering any question spiritually? Where, where do we go to find the authority to answer that question? The Bible. Where? The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> this, this year, Bible. Biblia. By the way, Bible Biblia just means... Bible means library. That's library. Okay, so we go to the library. So, to answer that question, we start with creation. So, God created man. Let me, let me translate it. So, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, watch this. When God created humanity, he created us male and female. Now, which one of those gives us the full, clear picture of what God is like? According to that verse. Let's make humanity in our own image. And so he created them, male and female. Which of those two, male or female, represents the image of God? Both. Absolutely critical that we understand that, okay? So male and female are absolutely 100% equal in creation. And that never changes. In fact, when, when Jesus came into the world and reconciled us, he brought male and female back together again. And so in creation, God made us male and female. And the male and female are both equal. And if we only had males in this world, we would never know what God is like. If we only had females in this world, we would never know what God is like. We have to have male and female to get the full image of God. You with me there? Okay. God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he put the challenge in front of them. Who was the first one to break the law and eat of the fruit? Uh-oh. Who did God blame for what they did? Well, he first asked Adam. He blamed Adam. Eve was tempted. Then she, gave the, she ate of the fruit and she gave it to Adam. And then Adam ate. And you would think that when God came, he would say to Eve, Ah, you were the one who went astray. He didn't. He came to Adam. Where was Adam when Eve was being tempted? Was he somewhere else in the garden? Was he somewhere else in the world? Where was Adam 
when Eve was being tempted. He was with her. She gave some to her husband who was with her. Okay, now, God spoke to Adam and he told Adam, this is what you're to do. Then he created Eve and Adam was supposed to teach Eve and he was supposed to lead her. Okay? When the serpent came and tempted Eve, snake came up and said to her, did God really tell you you can't eat from this tree? Come on. He knows if you eat of this tree, you'll become like God. And Eve said, huh. And at that point, Adam should have said, snake, shut up. What in the world do you think you're doing? You have no right to contradict God. Be quiet. Adam stayed silent while Eve was being tempted. He stood there with his hands in his pockets. He didn't have pockets. So <laughs> stick with me. Okay. Adam was with Eve and he did not protect her. He abdicated his responsibility. I believe he was watching, thinking, huh, I'm going to watch and see if she eats and dies, then I can go to God. Hey, hey, I didn't do it. She did it. I didn't touch me. Mm -hmm. He was such a coward that he was willing to let his wife die. He was willing to let her die in, in that process. And so when God came to them, he came and he said, Adam, you're to blame. You bear the responsibility for this. And in that, he established a point that is carried all the way through Scripture. And that is, while there is equality between male and female, God gives a responsibility for leadership to the male. The ultimate responsibility. It's not a privilege. It's a responsibility. is given to the male in, in the relationship. Okay? So, God punishes Adam and, and blames him for everything that went wrong. Now, Eve does, does get punished and the snake gets punished. There's that, that in there. Childbirth. Yeah. Oh, interesting thing for Eve. You will, you will experience increased pain in childbirth, which meant she was probably going to have pain in childbirth anyway, but it would be increased. But your desire will still be for your husband. That's so comical. I'm sorry, it's not comical. It is. You would think that after she gave birth to the first child, she'd say to Adam, if you ever come near me again, I'll kill you. I'm not going to go through that pain again. But instead, God said, no, you will still desire your husband, and you'll come back to him in that. All right, so now we carry it forward, and we carry this process down. God gave over the generations a responsibility to the man to be the spiritual leader of his household. But men throughout history have abdicated spiritual leadership. Men have always moved on. They, don't have the, they, they haven't cultivated the sensitivity to God that women do. But God has always held men responsible for doing that. Does that mean that men are, are more equal than women? Not at all. Um, hang on, I lost my notes here. I just want to read you some of the passages that are important. Oh, by the way, before I get there, let me just mention this too. In the family line of Jesus, women are featured. That was never done in those days. Mm-hmm. They'd become culturally twisted and they'd become cultures where, where they became male-dominated and a man's name would never be mentioned in a genealogy. In the genealogy of Jesus, there are women mentioned. And not only are there women mentioned, several of them are immoral women. Tamar, an immoral woman who had sexual relationships with her father. Rahab, a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Ruth, who was not even a Jew. Bathsheba, a woman who had an affair with King David. 
So in the family line of Jesus, there are women. Who were the first people to see Jesus rise from the dead? Women. The first people who saw Jesus rise from the dead were women. In those days, a woman was not allowed to give testimony in court because a woman was not considered trustworthy. If the disciples were inventing Christianity, they would never have said that Jesus appeared to women first. But it was the women first that he appeared to. So what Jesus was doing, he was pulling women back to the, the place of equality. There were women who, were, who traveled with him and his disciples. There were some women who, who, who served with him. When you get to the Apostle Paul, who becomes the big spokesman for Christianity, same thing. He's got women, disciples. He, he, he teaches women. He, he, he promotes women. Um, Lydia is the woman who starts a church in Philippi. He, he speaks about um, uh, Priscilla as a, as a woman who's a phenomenal Bible teacher. So he, he motivates, he promotes women. Uh, in his ministry as well, okay? So, uh, the passage I'm looking for, hang on, I've got to find it. Oh, don't go away. Don't <laughs> go away. All right. So, Paul says, You are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what Jesus did was the culture had turned it so that men dominated women. And what Jesus did is he brought women back up to equality. Paul brought them back to equality. But then he makes this interesting statement. He says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman in his family is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, if, God, if Christ... Is, is, is under God, does that mean that Christ is less than God? Mm-hmm. No, I'm waiting for them to do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no. It's, there's, there's, there's a hierarchy, but it doesn't mean that one is less than the other. There's simply a hierarchy for the sake of organization. And so when you get into the New Testament, the organization of the New Testament church is that ultimately the responsibility, and hear that word, ultimately the responsibility goes back to men. So when we're to choose elders, it is always men who are to become the elders. Hang on, I'm going to finish it through. When there are other group of people who lead the church called deacons, and there I believe it's men and women are deacons. All right? So why is it done that way? Simply for the sake of order. God said there's got to be order. There's got to be, if, if you don't appoint somebody to be the head, you have chaos. In this case, we're appointing that the male should be head of his, of his household. It doesn't mean that every man has power over all women. Amen. <laughs> a bug. It doesn't mean that all women have to submit to all men. Not at all. It means in the household, the husband is supposed to take responsibility for the spiritual life of his family. Many men abdicate that. It's just one of the sad things of history. Okay, so your question. So, I guess just like, how, how would... Um how would a man kind of take, like, take being seen as a lead in a bad way? Because, like, when you said, like, from the beginning, Adam's punishment was that he would be the lead of his... No, he's, he was punished a different way. He's, from now on, the world was going to fight him as he tried to grow crops and stuff like that. But the, res- the responsibility was still with him because God, God punished him first. 
and said it's your you are the one who is supposed to protect her you are the one who is supposed to take leadership so the uh, being being made the head does not that's not part of the punishment that's part of god's created order does that answer your question yes okay the way men have abused we don't even have to talk about it how men over history have abused women look at cultures today among in among the, the muslims where women are not allowed to go out in public without covering their faces and without wearing the you know coverings and stuff like that they're not allowed to drive cars in most places where women are treated as if they're second-class citizens what christianity did was it completely brought them back to equality phenomenal change that happened culturally that began to sweep through the world. It used to be in Jesus' days, just when Jesus walked the earth, that men had to be faithful to only their wives. But men could have mistresses galore, didn't matter. A wife could not have other men. She had to be faithful to her husband, and that was it. So they had a totally corrupted culture, which then was changed by Christianity. Within a couple of centuries, the world was turned around. Women were elevated to equality, and children were saved. I mean, it was amazing change that culturally that happened. Do you think churches that are um, egalitarianism, mm -hmm. like, do you think that's bad or? So what she's talking about are their churches that now will ordain women to be pastors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that bad? I think it's. If is it is it morally bad? I think it's dangerous, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the church I grew up in, the women. And the children went to church. The men didn't go to church. Why? Because women were leading the church. It was a woman's thing to do. My dad took us to church every single Sunday, made us go to Sunday school. He never went to Sunday school. <laughs> my uncles dropped off my cousins. They went to the bar while the women and children went to Sunday school. Men abdicate their responsibility and, and don't see it as spiritual. So the they pa didn't, they the didn't. pastor of our church used to sit and sip tea with the ladies. Mm. He was just like a, I'm sorry, he, he was he a was feminized a, yeah. man. So, so they, people didn't listen to the word because women were preaching. No, I've listened. All right, let me tell you a story too. I'd gone through four years of college and four years of the best seminary in the world. And when I went back to South Africa, I went to a, a church meeting one night and a woman stood up. And in 45 minutes, she taught how we got the Bible better than any professor I'd ever had. Her name was Liz Campers. And I went up to her and I said, Liz, that's amazing what you just did. Will you come and teach that to my church? And she said, no, I'm a woman. I'm not allowed to do it. I said, no, 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 I've got a way. I want you to do it. So Liz eventually became a member of my church. So she was an incredible teacher. So women can teach phenomenally, teach the, teach the Bible, and there is a way that we should open the door for women to teach the Bible and for women to, to lead, okay? So let me quickly describe to you how we function as a church, and then I'll come back to the, the cultural things, okay? So, <laughs> sorry. Again, where, where we go for our authority is that we have to obey the Bible. Okay? And even if it's uncomfortable, we have to obey the Bible. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1 says that the elders of the church are men, have to be men. But there are others who serve in leadership of the church, and they're called deacons. It means servants. They can be men and women. So here's what we've created, is that in our case, we have a group of elders. But we also have counselors. 
or deacons is another word for it. And so our board, church board, is made up of deacons and elders. The elders are men, the councillors are men and women. And we meet together all the time. Because what used to happen is in an elders meeting, somebody would say, you know, people are saying, and we'd say, we know, your wife said to tell us. You know, <laughs> we'd know that there was a woman behind it. So that's the structure we've put together and it works beautifully. Now, there have been times over the years when I've had a woman in my church who, that was phenomenal. I had a woman uh, who was the most incredible mother and she had such good principles of, of raising children. And I was doing a series on parenting and I was going, this is stupid. She's way better than I am. And so I had her come up and teach with me on parenting. And it was wonderful just to have her teach that. So you go, well, how do we make sure that men take responsibility? Part of it is the structure that God put in place was to force men to step up and for force men to take responsibility for the spiritual life of, of uh, their families and of the church. Um, and it's, it's part of his structure. He's got lots of rules, reasons why he did that. In Paul's day, there was an interesting thing that had to happen. What happened is that as the church started, women were immediately elevated to equality. And the minute that happened, culturally, people were looking at the church like, woo, what's happening here? Women are taking control. And that's what was happening. Hmm. Women took control. Women are more organized. Women are more, more um, sensitive to the Lord. You really are. They, they, we're two different sexes. And you guys are more sensitive, more in tune. I guess, than men are, okay? But women started to take control, and Paul went, wait, wait, wait. Things are going out of balance here. He said, so in order for this to happen, here's what's got to happen. He said, first of all, I don't allow a woman to teach in church. It's there, 1 Corinthians 14. And he says, and it's not cultural, it's from God. And you go, oh. But he said, but there's an exception. When a woman speaks in church to pray, to lead, to teach, to speak, what she must do is she must put her veil on. Now, culturally, that's what they understood, that a woman would put a veil on her head, and the minute she put a veil on her head, it was saying, I am submitting to the leaders of this meeting. So it was a cultural signal. In fact, Paul, in that same passage, says, and men, I don't want you to wear hats in church. The minute you wear a hat in church, you're saying, I'm submitting. No, 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 no. I don't want you to be submitting. I don't want you to wear a hat in church. Woman wears the veil. And what hap would happen is in a church meeting, if a woman wanted to speak, she'd put her veil on and it would remind her, don't take control, but speak your mind. And it would say to the men, don't abdicate your responsibility to, to lead. Are you guys with me still? Does it still apply? Pardon? Does it still apply? All right. So if my grandmother, my two grandmothers were to come and visit here and walk into our church on a Sunday morning, they'd be going, why are these women not wearing hats? Because that's how they grew up. Generations ago, they wore hats when they went to church. They didn't know why they were wearing hats. They thought it was a fashion thing. It wasn't. It came from that idea of the veil. Today, we don't wear hats at all. Women don't wear veil. But we do have cultural signals. We do have cultural ways of, of obeying that. What would you think the cultural signals would be in our day and age? <laughs> I love it. 
One of the cultural signals is our, the way we structure. So that's the cultural signal. We're saying, okay, God, this is uncomfortable. If you ask men to be elders in our church, the nice thing about it is we have to persuade them, which is so good. When a man says, yeah, I'm an elder, I've arrived, oh gosh, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be an elder in this year church. The minute a guy does that, we go, thank you, we don't want you. Yeah. Okay? Mm-mm. I, had a, I had an elder in my church oh, in South Africa. He'd been in, in the Rhodesian army. He'd been a captain in the Rhodesian army. He'd been in war. He had killed people in warfare. And he, became, he was just this gentle giant of a man. And I asked him to become an elder, and he said, I'm not worthy. He said, I know, that's why I want you to be an elder. <laughs> because you're aware that you're, you know, there's no strutting arrogance. And so that's part of how we do it. There used to be a cultural signal. For example, when Liz spoke at my church, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the other lady. Uh, she still lives in Senlo Hills. What was the name? Anyway, when she spoke at, when a woman spoke at my church, I would stay on the platform with her. When a man spoke at our church, I'd go sit down in the congregation. And it was something in my brain that I didn't even think of. Because it was just a cultural signal from my years of growing up. When I grew up, if a woman walked into the room, we stood up. If a man walked in, it was like, eh. Mm -hmm. But if a woman walked into the room, the men always stood up. And if you didn't stand up, one of the women would walk over and smack you. Um, (laughs) You know, my mother or my grandmother would smack me. Like, "What, what do you think you're doing? A woman just came to the room. You're supposed to stand up. You're supposed to open the door. Um, you know, for a woman going through. In the car, you open the door so she can get in. <laughs> now we just drive off whether she's in or not. She's got to run after us and catch up. There were cultural signals that, that helped to not, not keep men in a dominant position. <clears throat> Paul says this to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her. Not, not dominate her, sacrifice yourself for her. That's how a man leads. He doesn't lead top down, he leads bottom up in order to, to promote his wife. Can I say something to that? Yeah. Um, one of the best things that I ever did in preparation uh, for marrying Tiffany is doing what's called a premarital class. Um, and it's a simple thing, a lot of churches do it. I mean, if we had more people getting married here, we'd have it too. I'm sure you've done premarital classes and what it does is it prepares you for marriage and one of the biggest things that they teach you and help you to understand is the idea of submission I mean imagine doing a premarital class talking about submission in the 21st century with all the kinds of ideals and 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 social things that we have Um, just the the word itself has become a bad word submission especially uh, when you talk about a woman being submissive to the husband. Um, but you can do it very delicately and you could do it very biblically, Holy Spirit led and all that. The main thing that I still think of today is that my relationship to my wife and her submission to me um, is a ministry. My first ministry isn't to you guys, it's to my wife and my family. Uh, meaning I need to lead them well. I need to serve all of them well. Um, and the thing that they beat into my head was that if I am not submitting first to Jesus, if I'm not submitting first to Christ, my wife has no obligation to submit to me. <laughs> That's what they said. They're like, she has no obligation. If you're not submitting to your first love, 
to, to Christ himself, to God, then she has no obligation to submit to you. Why would she? Um, and it's, it's all about this mutual submission. I'm submitting to God, so therefore my wife is going to submit to me, and I serve her. And a lot of people like to think of the things that gentlemen do, which is open doors, carry things for um, women and stuff like that. Women Cheers. are like, I'm strong and capable enough to do it. And it's doing those things, being chivalrous or whatever, isn't saying that you're not capable or that you're weak. It's a, it's, it is a sign of service. It's submission to God. I follow God. He would do this for me, so I'm doing it for you. And that is the hugest thing. And, uh, you know, I think, I think maybe you mentioned punishment because I said it like that when I was talking about um, Adam's punishment being now he has to be the leader. I see it as not as a punishment but more like um, this obligation, this this. I mean, sometimes I do see it as a punishment because it's our natural thing for men to do is to abdicate that responsibility. It's, it's in our nature to just be lazy. And I mean, it happens in parenting all the time with me. It's so much easier to, to just be violent and to punish and to not explain. Uh, and it'd be so much easier just to let my wife lead because she's more than capable of doing that herself. Um, but is an exercise in humility and an exercise in submission to our first love, which is God. So, I guess we're getting close, but let me, yeah. let me just point something out to you. What does that say? The word submit <laughs> in Greek is hupotasso. <laughs> All right. That's the word submit. So listen to where submit comes, comes up in the Bible. Hupotasso to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives... To your husbands, as to the Lord, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Notice it starts with submit to one another. So wives and husbands have to submit to one another. Yeah. Now, we usually think of submit means I lower myself, I become a worm, <laughs> I, I go down low. That is not what the word means. It's a military word. Hupotasso means to rank the other person above you. And so the, the responsibility is for a husband to rank his wife above him by loving her as Christ loved the church. And the way that a wife is to, to rank her husband is by giving him that, that kind of submission and following his leadership. Let me illustrate it for you. When I went to the army, one of the guys just in my barrack, his name was Stuart. He and I went in two different directions. I became a, a lance corporal, which is just way down way down just just way down <laughs> Stuart went away to officers training school and then rejoined us after several months and I was sent with the truck to go and pick the guys up who were coming into camp we went down with the trucks and I'm looking down the line and there's Stuart <laughs> Stuart now remember we started we were both down here Stuart <laughs> I ran Stuart hey and when I ran up to Stuart he had a little star on each shoulder, which said, I'm a second lieutenant, I'm an officer. And so I had to stop in front of Stuart, my buddy, my friend, <laughs> and I had to salute him. <laughs> I had to, that's the command, okay? So Stuart was now a second lieutenant. One of our parades, we were on the ground, and second, Stuart is out there on the parade ground, and he says, Sergeant Major, and the Sergeant Major had been in the army forever, okay? But he was lower rank than Stuart. And the sergeant major said, Sir! 
And Stuart said, meet me at the side of the playground. And we're all going, what? That's not normal. So they went to the side of the playground. And I found out later what happened is Stuart went to the side of the playground with the sergeant major. And the sergeant major had to obey him because he's higher ranked. And they got to the edge of the playground. And Stuart said to the sergeant major, what do I do next? <laughs> He'd forgotten what to do next. So the sergeant major had to tell him. Then he went out there and he gave a command to the sergeant major. To submit means I rank the other person above me. In an army, the last thing in the world they want you to do is to become a worm. You're to submit to the officer above you, but that doesn't mean that you lower yourself and become a doormat. Not at all. To submit means you lift the other person up. You promote the other person. And this goes both ways, correct? Yeah, but in marriage it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. So, and it's interesting, there's a book called Love and Respect. They did incredible studies to find out what is it that women in a relationship want most? And what do men in a relationship want most? And they discovered something interesting. Women want affection and men want respect. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the Bible commands. So husbands, give your wives that kind of affection. If you're, if you're not giving your wife affection, she will hunger for affection. She will long for affection and some other man may step in and give her affection. Wives, if you're not treating your husband with respect, you, he's got nothing. You can have, and I can tell you from experience, you can have the respect of all the women in the world, but if your wife doesn't respect you, you've got nothing. And, so the, and it, it means giving him that respect as a person. And it's one of the greatest gifts. Take that into marriage and remember that. That for guys, you've got to be leaders, okay? There's no more going, oh, I can't be a leader. Shut up. <laughs> Lead. Man. It's time for you to, to man up and start becoming a man. That doesn't mean become a bully. It means become a man who will, who will serve your wife. Hey? Okay? Hey? Don't be a bully. Be a man. <laughs> There's a big difference between a bully and a man. Um, I... I had a bad experience of it with, with one of the leaders in a previous church. I said, hey, I'd like to have, have dinner with you guys. How, would you be available Friday? He said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you talk to your wife and see if, if, if that'll be okay? He said, she does what I tell her. And it was like, oh, okay, I don't think we'll have supper on Friday night. I don't want to be around you. That just, are you kidding? That's just, that's abusive. That's, jer that's a jerk. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to know how culture is going, you ask a, a husband today that same question, and they would say, "I have to check with my wife." I do that all the time. <laughs> she controls the schedule. You know what I'm saying? Like abdicating our responsibility, but it doesn't mean that as a husband I need to control everything. Um, it's a mutual submission to each other. So. Now we make our schedule, we talk to each other. It's not like, this is what you're going to do. I can't imagine saying that to Tiffany. And she can't imagine doing that to me either, so. Yeah. It may be the last thing you said. Yeah, seriously. And Tony evaporated from Earth. So this, all of this leaves lots of things, but at least yeah. we got to a baseline. Um, guys, the next session that we're gonna do is gonna be in a couple weeks. We're gonna do a two week break in between them, so. Uh, look forward to that. I'll you know post on social media. Thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, we're gonna close with the song, uh, but I want to um, just thank Pastor Raymond again for joining us. And uh, pray for, for for him and for all of you.
Um, thank you guys so much for coming and submitting your questions. Yeah, uh, submitting. Uh, in two weeks. <laughs> Here are our questions. Jokes. <laughs> All right, so let me pray. Sorry. Loving, beautiful Father, I um, lift Pastor Raymond up to you. I'm so thankful, Lord, for his partnership in the gospel with me, Lord. Um, I'm thankful for all of his wisdom and knowledge. I'm thankful, Lord, that uh, he enjoys hanging out with us and, and being with us and sharing what he knows and um, just gleaning that energy, um, the mutual energy, Lord. We get energy from him, and I'm sure he gets it from us. Um, I'm just so thankful for him, and I pray that you would bless him, Lord. I pray, God, that um, you would continue to bless his ministry, uh, and I'm so thankful. I'm also thankful for these young people who are willing to uh, engage or willing to, to be inquisitive, Lord, and willing to be open about um, their questions or doubts or whatever, Lord. I'm just so thankful that we have this opportunity uh, and this time to worship you uh, through, through education, through learning, uh, and being with each other. We bless you. Uh, we, we pray that you would bless us, Lord, and we thank you. Um, we praise your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. That's a, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> if you guys could um, can move your board. We can move it a little bit. Yeah. Um, someone needs to move. <laughs> it's okay. I got it. Yeah. I don't want to run over your toes. Um, don't raise the bridge. Lower the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've taken my position. So thank you guys for coming. Um, we're really excited about um, what we're doing here. And if you guys have more questions, uh, if these, the things that we discussed tonight, if it brings up other things, uh, feel free to either say something now or you could submit more questions to us um, at a later time. Uh, I have been pretty nervous about tonight. I'm thankful that we have our Pastor Raymond here uh, to help me with this, simply because I know... No, I'm nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to be nervous. I'm not. No, no, no. You know, it's, it's interesting. The, um, once you get to a certain point, you know, people assume things about, about you and your knowledge. Um, and the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that we can have so much knowledge. You know, Pastor Raymond went to advanced schooling for this, right? Um, I went to my undergrad for this and I, you know, have experience as a shepherd, right? But we don't know absolutely everything. We know what we can know. Um, but there are some things like mysteries to us, um, that haven't been revealed to us. And if we don't know the answer, it doesn't mean that the answer doesn't exist. Um, what it simply means is that, you know, we could probably look it up and find out for you. And what's amazing about the Christian life is that we're able to do this as well. And, you know, through the discipleships programs that we have here at the church um, that we're going to be offering in the future, like it could be possible for you to learn how to study your Bible and study it well, how to do it maybe systematically, how to do it um, just from a bare bones aspect. Like if you have no idea how to study your Bible, we can teach you how to do that. Um, and that's the amazing thing about our faith. And that's the reason part of the reason why we have the church is so that we can sharpen one another. Um, so that we can learn from one another because, you know, we're all trying to figure it out. And this is what people have been doing since the beginning of time, since Jesus is, was on this earth, since even before that. So thank you guys so much for showing up and for having the kinds of questions that you do have. Um, so let me sort of give you guys of what's going to happen. You guys all submitted questions and Pastor Raymond and I went through it and 
we didn't really filter anything. There are no questions that we're not going to leave on the table. Um, but we did decide that it's going to be um, in three parts. We don't even know how many questions we can get through tonight. We're assuming maybe two or three or maybe four or five. Uh, depends on the discussion that we have and how in-depth you guys want to go. So um, tonight we're going to be focusing on uh, a few key areas. That is the reliability of scripture, the Trinity, um, and salvation. Okay, so that's how we sort of divvied up the questions. And as we go on with the series, we'll get more into the relational stuff, the evangelistic side of it, uh, which is also really interesting. But I think Pastor Raymond and I decided that it'd probably be best to have a good foundation before we go on with anything else, right? So, Pastor Raymond, take it away. So we realized as we're, as we're looking at your questions, that we, in order to answer them, we have to answer them from a base. There has to be a source of authority to answer the questions. Because all of us have our own opinions and, our, and so on, but that's not what you need. That's not what any of us need. We have to understand, all right, if, if, these are, if these are questions that affect our, not only our lives, but our eternity, we better make sure that we know where the authority for this comes from. And so the key is the authority is not Tony or myself. It's not any human being. We, have, we are utterly dependent upon God to have communicated truth to us. So there's a couple of assumptions we're going to make. First of all, that truth, there is truth. There is absolute truth. If there is no absolute truth, we may as well flounder away the rest of our lives because we, we're just little bumps on the log here. We don't, we, we don't <laughs> exist. So the first assumption is that there is absolute truth. Second assumption is we can find absolute truth because God has given us brains. He's given us the ability to think and the ability to question. So on those assumptions, that, that will go forward and answer the questions. So I, I, some of you took a while back, I did a thing on the Bible, and I asked a couple of questions. So think carefully and answer this question. Which of these two statements is true? Something is true because it's in the Bible. Well, something is in the Bible because it's true. All right, let me say them again. Something is true because it's in the Bible. Well, something is in the Bible because it's true. Which of those two statements is primary? Say it again. Mm -hmm. Something is, in, is true because it's in the Bible. Or something is in the Bible because it's true. Which of those are primary? Second one. Second one. And that is one of the most important things to understand. That something, it's not just because it's in the Bible that we say, well, it's true because it's in the Bible. No, <laughs> it's in the Bible because it's true. And God has assembled all of the data that we need in order to know him during this period of life into the Bible. Now, so here's, oh, I hope he's working. <coughs> Whiteboard drawings for two. Pardon? Okay, good. Here's the red Thank you, Noah. Here's the purple people eater. <laughs> and I'm about to declare something to be absolutely true. Well, there's no way I could declare something to be absolutely true. I don't even understand myself. Quite honestly, there's things I do and I think, where in the world did that come from? Why do you do that? For example, I, I used to notice that I walked out into the sun and I would sneeze. And I thought, how weird is that? Why do I sneeze when I walk into the sun? 
And so I actually used it as illustration one day in a sermon in Philadelphia, and I said, I've got this weird thing. I walk into the sun and I sneeze. How stupid is that? I don't understand. <laughs> and a physician came up to me afterwards and he said, I'll explain it. He said, you have, you have overlarge pupils, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, when you walk into the sun, your eyes contract. You need to contract quickly, otherwise you'll do damage to your eyes. And so God built a mechanism into you that causes you to sneeze. And when you sneeze, it contracts your pupils and protects your eyes. It's like, how cool is that? I'm not, and some of you may have experienced the same thing. How weird is that? Okay, so if I say, I'm going to tell you something is absolutely true, that's ridiculous, Raymond. You didn't even know why you sneezed, okay? <laughs> I can't declare something to be absolutely true. No human being can. Even if he's a pope, <laughs> okay? No human being can. The popes in the past made these big statements, which were wrong and were proven to be wrong. <laughs> No human being can say this is absolute truth because we're limited creatures. If there's a God and if there's absolute truth, God has to communicate that absolute truth to us because there's no way we could know it otherwise. So, next assumption. God wants us to know him and wants us to know the truth. So, if God wants us to know the truth, he wants us to know him he's going to have to communicate it to us in a means that we can actually connect and think and see our way through and the bible teaches us that there are two ways that god has, has communicated three actually one is in nature where he declares his existence in nature and we can see that um, you look at a tiny baby and you've got to go there's got to be a god that made this. Look at a puppy or a kitten. I mean, it's just like, wow, God made this, okay? Um, our own conscience tells us that there's something beyond us. There's no culture on earth that doesn't have a religion. Every culture develops religion. Every culture knows there's a spiritual world beyond the physical. And every culture has concepts of right and wrong. And every person has that inside of them. But God wanted us to have it in written form. And so he also then encapsulated all the truth we need to know in the Bible. I've missed one other way. What's the primary way God has communicated with us? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Yeah. Jesus and the Spirit. We'll come back to it in a while. Okay. So God wants us to know him. And he wants us to know truth. And so he sent a message in nature. We, and Psalm 19 says, you look at the, the universe, you know there's a creator God behind all of this. Your conscience tells you there is a God and that there's a spirit realm. God said, but I want you to know me personally. So he communicated himself through Jesus and then he had it all captured for us in this book. And the Bible says of itself, this is living and powerful. This book is capable of going down to the core of our beings and helping us to come to a knowledge of God. So that's why everything we answer has to be from the Bible. Not from tradition, not from what we think, not what we feel. Everything we answer has to be from the Bible because that's the only core, the only source of, of absolute truth in the world. How do we know the Bible is true? There's two tests that you expose the Bible to. The first is external. Does it speak to life as it really is? 
or does it say things about life that it's like, oh, that's not true. Okay, so that, that's a valid way to test the Bible. When it speaks to life, can we test it to see if it speaks the truth? And then the other one is internal. When it speaks, is it self-contradict? Does it contradict itself or is it something that supports itself? Now here's the interesting thing. It was written in three different languages on three different continents by more than 40 different authors and from the time the first book was written to the last book was written was about 1600 years. And one of the astonishing things about this book is that while there's progression, it's all one message. The earliest statements about Jesus come true when Jesus comes to earth. And all of that points in that direction. There's phenomenal internal consistency. Sometimes people say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Tell them, name one. And most people go, the Bible's full of contradictions. I know you already said that. Name one. Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Just name one and we'll deal with it, okay? The Bible is not full of contradictions, which is absolutely astonishing. So, as we answer your questions, we'll go back to the Bible because we have to go back to an authority that is not us. It has to be something external to us. And churches have to choose, where is your final authority? And in the case of ch many churches, millions of them all over the world, the decision is the Bible. Not our traditions, not our doctrines, not our, you know, Popes, we go or, or pastors, we go back to the Bible as our as our source. So that's that's just to lay the foundation before we start answering questions. So now that I put you to sleep, <laughs> do you have any questions about this part? <coughs> so, is that a hand up because you're yeah. yawning or, or because you're asking a question? Okay. Or I mean, I mean, this is dumb, but I'm just curious. Uh, are we allowed to declare the Bible absolute truth because we're ignorant? Sorry, say it again. I mean, apparently we know people can declare absolute truth, but can we declare the Bible as absolute truth, or is that declared by something else? Okay, so here's here's the interesting thing: is that the world out there likes to say there is no absolute truth. Well, is that an absolute statement? Mm -hmm. That there is no absolute truth. So it's just, okay, so you come back to that. Yes, I would say in its original manuscripts, okay, and that brings up a good point. In its original manuscripts, the Bible speaks without error and declares absolute truth. Now, don't fall asleep on this one, okay? We don't have any of the original manuscripts. What we have are phenomenal copies of the original manuscripts. So it was written originally in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. But the copies we have are so phenomenal that they, that um, there's a whole school of, of uh, uh, research. The researchers have for, for a couple of hundred years now bombarded those texts. And they come away and go, these are so close to the originals, we would declare them the originals. And so, in, its, in the original text, the Bible speaks absolute truth. Now, the reason why I point that out is when we translate from Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic into whatever language we speak, there's a lot of, of, of work that goes into choosing which particular word captures exactly what that means. For example, in the New Testament, the Greek word adelphos can be translated brother, adelphia, you know, Philadelphia, 
Adolphos can be translated brother. But lately, as they've done more research, they're going, you know what? There with the Adolphos actually means sibling. So you'll find that the latest translations of the, of the New International Version, when they come across that word, will say brothers and sisters in order to capture the fact that both of them are there. So you with me there? So in the translation into any language, the scholars who do it have to study extremely hard and choose the best English word that they can to capture that. <coughs> the book of Ecclesiastes, and you've got to read the book of Ecclesiastes sometime soon, it, like it was written for today. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a Hebrew word, hebel, that shows up. And as you go through the book, that one Hebrew word can be translated multiple ways depending on its culture. So it's the one that starts with the words meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Vanity. Okay, so vanity, uh, vanities, no. everything is vanity, whatever vanity might mean. <laughs> okay. It can also mean transitory, transitory, everything is transitory. And in a sense, in the, those first couple of chapters, that's probably the better translation. Because what he's doing is he's saying to us, I want to find out, if I take God out of the picture, I want to find out what I can do that will make my life fully, fully everything I want it to be. So that when I have found this thing, I will go, yes, I am 100% satisfied. And he tries. He tries education. He tries creativity. He tries building buildings. He tries being king. He tries sex. He tries everything, he tries pleasure, he tries things over and over and over and over and over again. And in every single case, he comes down to the bottom line and he goes, transitory. It's transitory. Because, and you've seen this, there's a moment when you've got something and there's a moment of joy and it's like, and then it's gone. And you hear this new song and it's like, oh, yes, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> you hit play again. Oh, I love that song. Hit play again. It's oh, such a cool song. And you hit play again. It's like, hey, what else? <laughs> Isn't that true? It's transitory. There's nothing on this earth that comes into your being where you can go, this is what is worth living for. And so that one word is translated transitory sometimes. Sometimes it's translated meaningless. Sometimes it's translated vanity. It depends on its setting. So when we translate the Bible, and it, quite frankly, it's fun to, to get into this. That's why I have multiple copies of, of uh, the Bible. Because that way you can read different translators and go, ooh, that helps. That makes sense to me there. By the way, Ecclesiastes ends. It's two book bookends. Start by saying, Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And it ends by saying, meaningful, meaningful, I found what is meaningful. Fear God and keep his commandments. And this is what makes life meaningful. So it lasts forever. How do I get into this? Oh, so can we declare the Bible to be absolute truth? Yes, in the original manuscripts. We're so fortunate in this day and age, there's new translations coming out all the time. As, as researchers find stuff in archaeology, they find things in other languages, and they translate the Bible into more and more accurate translations. Um, if you want a, the New American Standard Bible, is probably the most literal of all the translations. It's very literal. And it's sometimes hard to even follow because it's so literal, it's just bedrock. The New International Version is, is easier, the English Standard Version 
is also a very good one to go with. So. I have a couple things. Yeah. Um, so the one who wrote Ecclesiastes is just because I reread it recently. Uh, it's Solomon. And, you know, he wrote Proverbs and Solomon asked God for wisdom. So he was the most wisest person besides Jesus to ever live. And when he was writing Ecclesiastes, I, I pictured a man who lived a very full life. You know, Jesus talks about um, Solomon's uh, splendor. You know, like, look at look at him. He's like... The, the, the wealthiest king and he, he he was dripping right like he had he had oh the God, that or whatever. Drip. he got the drip um, so he was dressed really nice you know he had everything and he's sort of like at the end going you know what all this wisdom has brought me nothing <laughs> he's like I'm the wisest person ever but you know I've seen fools do better things than 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 the wise people were right and that's what he talks about and it's just very interesting to to, to remind yourself of who's writing this it's the wisest person one of the wisest people to ever live and he's, he's just saying like listen if if you if you can have everything in the world because he had it he was the king he was wise he had riches and wives and all kinds of stuff right but in the end if you don't if you don't um follow god and keep his commands it's worth it's meaningless right that's what um having meaning is like what he talked about it's bookended with each other so the textual criticism thing is really interesting uh the reliability of scripture and how you know the we the Bible is the most um, corroborated piece of uh, literature in the entire history of the world, uh, meaning that there are more manuscripts that have been found that have uh, been you know almost carbon copies of one another um, than any other piece of literature. Um, it's it's the Bible is more reliable than uh, stories of Homer uh, and you know the writings of, of whoever, right? Like there's just more copies of the Bible that exist. And the older that you get, they still match up with the newer ones. And that's how you can, that if you get into it, it's pretty interesting. I think Lee Stroll makes a good case for it too in his case for Christ. He talks about it. It's this journalist who was an atheist and became a Christian because he investigated the Bible as if he was investigating a news story. And he came up with all this stuff. And it, it's quite amazing um, how how microscopic this kind of stuff gets. Um, yeah. I have some two questions. Um, first, does scripture ever like kind of declare itself infallible? And then second, what was the criteria for um, the books chosen for the Bible and how it was put together? Mm. <laughs> this is fun. So yeah, that's an issue of what's <laughs> called canon. Uh, canon, uh, it's a Latin word, I think, right? Yeah. It means to measure. Yeah, it's, the canon is a measure, and that's that's what the word is for, for when they put the Bible together. So they had a measure of what what is of God, uh, and they put it through this, this filter, I guess you could say. That's a good question. So does the Bible claim that kind of errancy? Psalm 19 says this, and, and there are other passages, but this one pulls it together. The law of the Lord, and that's referring first to the first five books of the Bible, but then it came to refer to the whole Old Testament. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord is sure and altogether righteous. So the Bible makes that statement about itself. Then how it was collected is that there was never a time when a group sat down, let's decide what goes in the Bible. 
Never. That never happened. What happened was that as the books were written and God's people began to read them, as they read them, they realized, wow, this is not just a book. God is speaking through this book. And so with the Jews, with the, the Old Testament books, they just literally collected themselves. Now, there were criteria. Who's the author? Um, when, when was it written? Why was it written? And how does it fit? So there were, there were tons of criteria. And I, I can give you more of the criteria. But the interesting thing is that the books collected themselves. Same thing happened with the New Testament. In the New Testament times, there were all kinds of writings that were circulating. But as some of them circulated, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Book of Acts, and Romans, and 1 Corinthians, as the churches read them, they went, oh my gosh, we want a copy. So they'd make a copy. And then they'd make a copy and send it on to another church, and that church would make a copy, and they'd make a copy of the copy, and the copy, copy, and that's how it happened. So that the New Testament pretty much assembled itself. By about the second century, it had settled into a, a, a collective group. Um, there's stories told that, that there was conferences held where where they decided no we're not going to include that book we're not going to include that book it never happened all that happened with the conferences was that they came together and went oh my gosh we agree there were two books that gave them trouble the book of hebrews was a hard it was a hard one for them to wrestle with and i think first peter which you guys are doing mm -hmm. sunday night was also there were, those were two books where they had to study and they had to debate but again there was no single organization that did this originally it was just spontaneous that it grew. And in a sense, that's nice because the Bible grew organically. It wasn't, it wasn't that a group of people sat down and said, let's write a Bible. <laughs> they couldn't have. 1,600 years spread them out. So I've got the actual details for, if you want them, for how the, uh, the canon was assembled. And it's, it's a fascinating study. What's so amazing is just that they agreed, yeah, this is the Word of God. So there were other writings that didn't get copied because they read them and went, eh, this is interesting, but yeah. But they never, they didn't get copied that often. So all you end up with is little fragments of, of some of those, those passages. The interesting thing about the uh, Old Testament scriptures was that a little um, shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave in uh, Qumran in uh, uh, Southern, the southern part of, of uh, Israel. And when they went down inside, they found these massive pictures, old water pictures that had manuscripts stuffed inside of them and then sealed. And because they were in the desert, they'd survived for a thousand years after the, they were put in there. So when they took those out and unrolled those scrolls, they had to be un unrolled really carefully. They, when they unrolled them and compared them to the ones that we have today, these were a thousand years older than the ones we had, and they were identical. That's how, that's how careful the Jews were in copying their scriptures. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, been to the, I've seen one of those scrolls. The whole scroll? <laughs> yeah, Isaiah. Wow. They have the scroll of Isaiah unrolled in the Dome of the Rock in, wow. in Israel. Yes. But what's weird is I'd already learned Hebrew, and I walked around going, how did you guys figure this out? Just because... Wow. The Hebrew we read is printed, and it's like, oh, that's cool. It has that's crazy. Yeah. syntax and all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, they didn't know. Those no, no, the ones, that, how you can yeah, read it. Yeah, yeah. these, the, yeah. The ones we read have little marks to tell you what the vowels were, but originally they didn't have vowels. They had no slate. Imagine reading a book with no spaces yeah. oh. and, and no uh, consonants. No, no, no vowels. No vowels. It had no vowels, all consonants. 
And no, dis no separation between the words. Exactly. No spaces. It's so that they can get it all in a scroll because paper was very valuable, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they needed to make sure that it yeah, fit it's just and they like, did it right. <laughs> Why didn't they just type it? Huh? Why didn't they just type it? <laughs> Why didn't they just type it? <laughs> just send me an email. Uh, if it's important, send an email. Just fax it. Who <laughs> thought of how cool it'd be to be transported back in time? Oh my gosh. With your, with your iPhone. Working, you know. Like, I got to take a photo run out of battery. Like, <laughs> <laughs> battery would die. That'd be my luck. I'd get right. all the way back there. The battery would die. Okay. Yeah, the issue of, of canon is very interesting, too. Um, what's interesting about the canon and about textual criticism is, is one of the names for the reliability of Scripture is that there are an astounding amount of biblical scholars that aren't even believers. Yeah. Um, one, uh, what's his name? Gosh, I can't remember. He's, he, he does debates and everything. Uh, a lot of atheists like to... Um, him. I can't remember his name right now. Um, but, you know, in one of the debates, an atheist was, was saying, like, oh, like, Scripture is, is full of contradictions and it's not reliable. Like, you can't even trust that Jesus was a real person. And this atheist was like, that's a ridiculous notion. <laughs> like, I don't believe, but it's, it's overwhelmingly um, true historically that Jesus was a real person uh, and that the Scripture is reliable. That the only discrepancies are... Um, what they call um, discrepancies of, of um, uh, like grammar and sight. So when people were writing down scripture, uh, they were copying it by hand, usually by candlelight probably. Uh, that was their whole job is just to copy and make sure. And, you know, there's this notion that, oh, the monks, you know, added in stuff or took away stuff. That's just not true. Um, especially evidence with the Dead Sea Scrolls, like, it was older, way older, centuries older than the oldest thing that we had, and it lined up. And it's like, you know, what, what, what Pastor Raymond said that uh, Scripture is infallible in its original autograph. What that means is that, um, you know, Scripture says that it's God-breathed, that Second uh, Peter talks about how uh, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture was written in the same way. It was all um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's an original autograph as they were writing it with, with paper and ink. That's infallible. That's what that means. And we can trust that God orchestrated this in, in a miraculous way to where we have it compiled before us. Yeah. It is literally a miracle you can hold in your hands. And people died for it. Yeah. People died so that we can have this. Ooh. Many, many people died. Which reminds me, when, when we're through, I'll go get them. I've got actual Bible leaves. I've got a, a, an actual Bible leaf from the very first ever English translation of the Bible. What? And he died for doing it. What? And then I've got pages from the, from the, the earliest King James versions as well, actual pages. I've got them in my office. The, one, the Tyndale New Testament was the first English translation. And he was... He was Martin, he gave his life because he did it. And because uh, they weren't allowed to translate it into a language that people could read because the priests didn't want to let go of their power. I mean, up until like maybe two decades ago, a lot of Catholic services were preached in Latin, a dead language. Like you would go and you'd be like, just sitting there and they'd talk, speak in Latin. <laughs> and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Wait, but they like, do like, 
the whole service in another language. Yeah. Subtitles? <laughs> no. Special <laughs> glasses, the subtitles pop at the bottom. <laughs> and there's, there's still older people who prefer it. I've been to an, a, a, Catholic, uh, a Catholic mass in all Latin, in Texas. I have to. Yeah. Is it scary? Here in California? That's insane. I feel like Latin is an intimidating language. Is an intimidating language? Well, yeah. Just like an the big brain big brain people. I've been, I've been in Austria. I went to a Catholic church. Is in German, and all I understood was when they would stand up and sit down. Well, that's important. Yeah. That's, that's the important part. I'd be like, oh, here you we go. People, like putting the knee thing down, you're like, oh, we're going to kneel yeah. soon. Okay, yeah. cool. So I, I preached once in a church like that, but like an idiot, I sat on the platform. I had no idea when to stand, when to kneel. Oh, so you were like up that. right in front of oh, everyone. Oh, right in front of everybody, this dimwit is sitting on the platform. <laughs> They're looking to you, right? Yeah, I know, but, but it, I, I, you know, the whole congregation knew when to do what to do. And as soon as I could, I scrambled and went down, sat down in the congregation like, oh my gosh, God. So just, just wait, just I found it. For the New Testament manuscripts, we have 24,970 of the New Testament manuscripts um, available to us. Um, in, uh, and they're in Greek mostly, but also in other languages, so that as they were translated into other languages, they were able to check it backward and forward. The point that, that many of these critics who did this, uh, what do you call it, do, the, the, the examination of the manuscripts weren't believers, in a sense that actually gives credibility to it, because they weren't trying to prove anything. They just loved the study of language, they loved the study of, of documents, and so they did the study for us. Now there were believers among them, but a lot of them weren't uh, weren't believers. And that story just reinforces the fact that they were going, no, these this is an incredible text. One that, of my uh, professors was talking about that. It was a, a German movement, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but the Germans were just like, we're going to study this, and they weren't <laughs> believers. And um, like old school Christian scholars were like, we're not into textual criticism. Uh, but it forced them to do it, and what it ended up doing is is reinforcing their their faith even more because they're like, oh, this actually does reconcile itself. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. There's one. I'll tell you one quick story. The uh, city of Jericho. How did the how did how, from your, what you remember of Sunday school teachers, how did the city of Jericho get captured by the Israelites? Anybody remember that story? Mm -hmm. Let's hear from you. They marched around the, the city like, once a day for seven days, and on the seventh day, they, they marched around the, the city. They oh, yeah, the trumpets. They blew the trumpets, and then yeah. what happened? The, the walls went down. Bing, beep, beep, beep. Okay. <laughs> but then, yeah, just... then they set light to the city. They set, set the city on fire. Okay? So, oh, yeah, and this is cool. <laughs> I watched this about... You're like, you skipped that Sunday school. What? What did you say now? <laughs> they lit the city on fire. Okay, yeah, they did. So they destroyed the city and they set the city on fire. All right, so, and three weeks ago, I watched this on the History Channel. So for the longest time, they said there was never a city called Jericho. And then lo and behold, they found the city of Jericho, digging under, underneath this enormous mound. And then they laughed at the idea, oh, come on. If the walls fell down because of fire, then there would be fire on both sides of the walls. There'd be marks of fire on both sides of the walls. The walls fell down first, then the fire came. 
I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh. And I was watching this on the History Channel going, yes, yes, I know why that happened. And they're going, the most perplexing That's thing weird. is that these walls were, had fallen down before the fire came and, and they could see all the marks. It's like, I know how that happened. Excuse That's me, sir. So I, agree. <laughs> I have the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right here. Like, it's right here. <laughs> Let me actually. They also, the, Bible, <laughs> the Bible used spoke about a tribe of people called the Ugarites. And that was mocked for years. Today you can go to Harvard University and get a PhD in the Ugaritic language. Wow. Because they found, archaeologists found it. So archaeology is constantly digging up stuff that helps to reinforce it. They just about, mm, they, I don't know when they found it, but that just reported in the last month that they found evidence of that King David literally did have a city called the City of David. And the Jewish uh, scholars found this a couple of years ago but they've just published it now. Mm -hmm. And again, that was one of the things people mocked. There was never a city of David. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, look at this sign here. It says city of David yeah. in miles. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Not quite, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy I think how, like, these things can just be totally true and then be able to hide it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't hiding it. They were still doing, in their yeah, case, they, they were still doing the, their research. <gasps> uh, and they had to be peer-reviewed before they could publish. Mm -hmm. And so... That's why it took a while to come out, but it's still like... But also, the media does control what's covered. Yeah. I mean, I read about that because, you know, I follow people who are interested in that. Mm. But otherwise, you're not going to find it on, like, CNN or anything. No. <laughs> I'm Carl Lazus. <laughs> oh. <laughs> CNN, <laughs> <laughs> Steven News. Why don't you see things in the news? It's like, the news... Yeah, can you imagine Dom Lemon, who said Jesus wasn't perfect? You know, you know they found the city of David. <laughs> Like another thing, I think I've I've read this where it's like they found like um, the ruins of like Sodom and Gomorrah, where it's like they said like God they just completely mm. annihilated it with fire. I think they found the ruins and it's just like like everything's like tarred, charred, like charred. What did I say? Another Tart. interesting. I think I, I think I said tart. <laughs> tart. I don't know. It's like completely black. Like everything is just yeah. charred. Yeah. Ash. Atheists like, are like, what evidence? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I don't see anything. Like this. So, I don't see anything. <laughs> with, with Sodom and Gomorrah, they, again, this was something totally unrelated. They found evidence of an enormous meteor that had struck the earth and, and just must have been one heck of a meteor. They figured out its age and they figured out its path and it went and guess where it went over? Sodom and Gomorrah. And the timing was, was the same too, was correct. Wow. So the reason why I feel it's important, we feel it's important that we do this, is so that you understand that there is a base for absolute truth. And we live in a world where the world is going to challenge our faith all the time, and where the world is going to come up with all kinds of things that, chat, that seem like, oh, that's the end of Christianity for you. It's like, no, this Bible can be, can be tested and proven. There's a book called Letters from a Skeptic, which I think every one of you should by and, and own. What's that called? Letters from a Skeptic, where a man wrote, a very intelligent man, wrote to his son, who's a professor in a seminary. And the questions he asks when you read his question, it's all their letters are collected in a book. And what's interesting is when, when the father asks a question, you think, oh no, it's over. And then the son answers and you go, Oi, all right, next question. <laughs> 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 Good answer. Yeah, that's yeah, a great book. Um, I worked at a church up in the Bay Area, and it was 
very challenging to work there. Um, Bay Area is very, um, just not like here. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. And we did confirmation classes for eighth graders. And confirmation for them is like, you know, we go through the doctrines of the church and then you confirm that you believe them and then you can get baptized. It was a non-denominational church, but they had a lot of different things that were denominational, like Presbyterians, so they had confirmation. It's like Catholic confirmation sort of thing where you learn stuff and then you say, yes, I believe that, and then you're allowed to be baptized and be part of the church. Um, and I remember like my first class that I went in, you know, he, my, uh, my boss Scott was the pastor and he, he like taught everything like really well, taught, taught from the Bible. But it, it was very sly, and I think it's part of the danger of, of thinking that scripture, that truth can't be found in scripture. Because though he was teaching the Bible, the conclusions that the kids were coming to were okay with him. They were saying, like when they would write their letter to say they confirmed stuff, they're like, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And however, I don't believe that there was an actual flood. Or I don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. All Ooh. these, like, I don't Ow. believe, like, I don't think that this is possible. And it was, like, totally okay with that pastor that they were saying that. And I was just, like, I was, like, squirming in my seat. I was, like, I can't believe that they're doing this, you know. Um, and I think a lot of those students I still remain in contact with. And a lot of those students have unfriended me <laughs> because of the stuff that I'd like to talk about, you know. You know, biblical and and about Christianity and culture and stuff like that. And it's the reason I, I, they, they came from a foundation that was shaky and like sand to begin with. Um, so anything that, that questions their loose foundation, they sort of just reject. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that we have a solid foundation. Yeah. I think like another thing that like kind of supports like that, like it going along with like the absolute truth thing like that, because I read this a while ago, it was um, John 1. It's like verse three, it says like, through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made and it's really cool to think about it's like like not just like think about it, it's like he like through him all things were made so yeah god created everything first off and second off like everything that has been made was not made without him like like uh the way that was it was put to me is like these like you can see god in everything like these glasses I mean, it's kind of funny I said see because I can't really see without them. <laughs> but it's like, that's that's God. God give like, this provides me vision. Like, these lights provide us to be able to see in this room. These, like, this allows us to, like, understand God. Like, these tables support things. And, like, just, like, how you can see God in literally everything, whether it's man-made or not. I Interesting thing is that if the world was created by the Big Bang, Genesis chapter 1 matches precisely the sequence mm. of the Big Bang. And there's no way that Moses, writing thousands of years ago, could have guessed that sequence. That, and the sequence is absolutely correct. And nobody, nobody ever came up with that rhythm. But Genesis chapter 1 describes the sequence exactly right. I think it was a Big Bang, but it wasn't a bang. It was started from nothing. Well, yeah. The scientists won't won't come to the, the logical conclusion that someone started it. They right. just imagine that it happened on its own. But it's mathematically impossible for it to start. It's yeah, it's impossible for for something to come out of nothing, and that's what they like base their faith on. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. you're literally almost there. Yeah. Like, come on, bro. It's so yeah. funny. It's like yeah, this car just popped into existence. Yeah.
That was Nothing they just sneezed in the suddenly universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so nothing they came up with panspermia, that there's other universes that created this universe. Then who well, created the other universes? universes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, it's just like, oh, right. Chicken or the or eggs. It's, or it's bigger like, the bigger <laughs> Or their argument, their argument. <laughs> bigger banks. Bigger banks. <laughs> no, or, or their argument, if they're like, well, if God created the universe, then who created God? And then you reverse the question on them, and you're like, well, who do you, like, what do you think created the universe? And I'm like, the universe. And I'm like, well, who created the universe? <laughs> like, so, That's their response. Yeah, like, so Ooh. let me throw one more thought in with, with, and this is just Raymond now, my interpretation, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. I think it was a sequence of six long periods of time. Mm. And so when, when you hear somebody teaching, well, that's ridiculous. Oh, the world was created in six days. God could create the universe in six seconds. Okay? He's God. He could have done it in six nanoseconds. <laughs> that's not the issue. The issue is what does the universe tell us God did? And the universe tells us that it's been around for billions of years. And the universe tells us, and Psalm 19 begins with that, the stars tell us the age of the universe and tell us about the creative system. So when you're challenged with that, you don't have to believe that, the, that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. There were six sequences, and the sequences absolutely matches the, the, the Big Bang theory beautifully. But it was a six, it was a long era. Long, I think there were long periods of time. I have no problem with the fact that God could do it in six literal days or six seconds. That's not the issue. It's how did he do it? And the universe tells us that there was a long process involved. And so be aware that there is that model. And there's, if any of you ever need it, I've got phenomenal books on this where, where real, literal scientists have, have tracked Actual this. scientists, yeah. So, I'm just going to say also kind of like adding on to that like isn't it like I think I read somewhere that like the number 40 was just sort of a metaphorical language for a really long time within Hebrew culture and it was just like 40 is just this really big number and they used it to be like a really 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 long time it was just sort of like metaphorical language for oh. that like another thing well, 40 in, in Hebrew like numerology it <coughs> signifies change hmm. um, I went through that in one of my sermons I um, like a few months ago about like Jesus you know 40 days and 40 nights um, the flood Israel in the desert for 40 years God wanted to change them a whole generation passed before they were able to see the promised land like yeah Jewish numerology is really interesting <laughs> And, and this may shock you, but I'm only 40 years old. <laughs> I, I am in here. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that I don't know the context, not the context, but like I forgot where I read this. But I think it's like, um, like in the in the Hebrew language, I think like when they like when they, how we have the translation of day, I think their word for that, I guess, is like period of time. So like like you said, it's like. There's like seven period on the seventh period of time he rested like on this day. Yeah, I think it's 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 like a, a snare of Satan to get caught yeah. up in that and to yeah, like, it's like the tiniest. 
to yeah to get lost in the details and forget like what Raymond was saying like that doesn't matter yeah like I mean it matters somewhat but you know it, it's inconsequential it's like how he did it not we need to know we, yeah. like I I think that if I if I got to heaven and I asked God I need you to tell me now like as soon as it comes out of my mouth I'm gonna be like I regret saying that like, who cares he's it's like, like why so I'm sorry it's like really really that's what you want to ask me. <laughs> Not all. Oh, where are the dinosaurs at? <laughs> what time do we have? 8.30. Oh. We, we've gone through one question. Yeah, let me, let me just quickly oh, tell nice. you Tyndale's story before I show you his thing. William Tyndale, actually he was, his, John Wycliffe was the first one to translate the Bible into English, but it couldn't be copied and it was not approved. William Tyndale published the New Testament in English. The uh, Bishop of London declared, um, sentenced him to death for doing that and demanded that they find all the copies of the Tyndale New Testament and burn them. And so he got a merchant to go and buy up all the copies of the Tyndale New Testament in order for them to be burned. So he went to Tyndale and Tyndale printed Bibles for him to burn. So the, the, the bishop who was trying to stop it actually funded the printing of the, of the wow. New Testament so that <laughs> he would print enough for the guy to burn and then send them out. Um, uh, Tyndale himself was strangled and his body was burned at the stake in 1536. His last words were a prayer that the king's eyes would be opened. Three years later that prayer was answered when Henry VIII ordered the publication of the Great Bible in English. Isn't that cool? Yeah. We were talking about that today, just about thinking about world history and and how it's it's clear that God's hand Ugh. intervened so many times in world history, um, and you know, like I've, I can't tell you how many times I felt uncomfortable in in terms of like um, some of the the stuff that that our church would like to do, like on Fourth of July. You know, they're like, we need to, you know, sing whatever, and I'm like, well, we're here to worship God, um, but there is something to say about how. God has shown favor to us as a people, as a country, as a collection of people. Um, it's good not to focus on that, but it's also good to be thankful. Uh, I'm sure Israel was thankful for all the blessings that, um, you know, was bestowed upon them. So I don't know why I thought of that. Um, okay. Uh, anything more? Do you want to? Does that, that completely put you to sleep? No, that's no. freaking awesome. <laughs> so the last, the next question that we can get through is something that we can't do in 14 minutes, but I'll try. Unless you go super speed. Super speed. No, so the question, no way. The question was, um, it, it's, it's relating to with the Trinity. Okay. And the question was, why do some people say I'm building my relationship with God? And I'm building my relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is the son of God, why wouldn't you want to build your relationship with God if he's higher in power? Or is there even a difference? And I thought that was a fantastic question uh, because it touches on something very complicated, <laughs> uh, which is the Trinity. Um, and I, I, I don't want to say the hierarchy within, right? Uh, because there is an explanation for the Trinity. If you're unaware of what the Trinity is, um, it's the... The, the doctrine that God is three in one, right? There's God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three of them are God, um, but they are three different persons. Yes. So I, um, 
So, did you know? Did you see that? Have you seen that? <laughs> no. Okay, so <laughs> that's very good. So, this, we didn't even plan this. So, this, this diagram here, you can insert these words. So, God is Son, God is Spirit. God is, 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 is Father God, Son, Father Spirit. Is God, Spirit is God, Son is God. Um, and then you could also say that Father is not, and correct me if you, if you yeah. disagree. Yeah, yeah you can also say Father is not. So on and so forth. So, Son isn't Spirit, Father isn't Spirit, and Son isn't Father, and Spirit isn't Father, etc. And now you understand it. Yeah, now you know it. Class dismissed. So, the Trinity is like we have to. We have to. <laughs> we have to come at it with the understanding that we, we as as fallen fallible humans, meaning we have many, many flaws, and we are limited in our knowledge. Um, we are trying to understand a God that is perfect and infallible and infinite. Like, we are finite beings, and we're trying to understand an infinite thing, right? So, just that alone um, causes some problems. <laughs> we're, it's, like, it's like a trash can trying to understand you know, it's maker. I don't know. I don't know why, why? I, I use that analogy. In this scenario, we are the trash can. And we're trying to understand it's maker. Now I am. being too generous. Okay. Okay. So um, the, question, the question that was posed is, you know, why, why would you say you want to have a relationship with Jesus when if 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 uh, Jesus is the Son of God, like why would you want to build a relationship with Jesus if God is higher in power? Um, I don't. And Raymond, go ahead and and, and you know, interject here. But I don't think that there is a hierarchy in the way that we think of a hierarchy, right? Like when Jesus was on Earth, um, he did the will of his Father, and the Holy Spirit is is what enables us to do the will of God, us personally, right? Um, so there, there's not like a, there's not like a, um, uh, a hierarchy of like, oh, you should focus only on your relationship with Jesus, right? Or you should only focus on your relationship with Father, with God the Father, or your relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that we sung that song, Holy Spirit. Um, it's interesting because I've, I've always had an issue with some of the words. I have issues with everything, but the words are there like Holy Spirit, you are welcomed here. You know, the, the whole idea of that he's is going, he's already here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How are you? He's like, fam, I'm, my house. I'm here already. Yeah. <laughs> he just opens the like, door. There's, there's a Babylon B thing where it's like, like, you know, the worship leader was asking for God's presence. Yeah. Everyone yeah. died. <laughs> yeah. Like, everyone was burned up in a church today because the worship leader asked for God's presence. Come <laughs> here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you'll notice that, like, when I pray, when I pray, I use the model of, of, of how Jesus taught us to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys know it. So Jesus said, when you pray, you are praying to the Father, right? 
So I always keep these, these, these sort of, if there is a hierarchy in mind, that this is who we are praying to. Um, but Jesus is also our intercessor. So when you pray, you also can pray to Jesus. Um, you, can, you can pray to Jesus for uh, intercession. Like, please, Lord, you know, advocate for me or what have you. The Holy Spirit, you can pray to the Holy Spirit for conviction. You can pray to the Holy Spirit for clarity. Uh, the Holy Spirit is what helps us interpret Scripture. It, what's help, it's what helps us to interpret um, uh, things that happen. It gives us words when we need it. Um, and the Holy Spirit was promised to us by Jesus, and we received it when we um, became believers in Christ. So all three of these things work together in unison. Um, and many, many people throughout the, the history of the church have argued about the very nature of the Trinity. And it's important to note that the word Trinity is found nowhere in Scripture, in the original language of, of, of Greek and, and Aramaic. It's not found in Scripture, but the principles of it are. Um, and I, could, I have a list of, of all these things, if you would like, uh, I have a list of resources that explain it. Because there's a bunch of Scripture um, that explains, like, there is one God. Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, and the Trinity consists of three people. Uh, what's interesting here is that in the scriptures where it talks about this, like the proofs for it, is that whenever, well, not whenever, but when God says we're going to do something, he says, let us do them. Yeah. Mm. From the beginning. This is Old Testament stuff. Let us. Yeah. Like, this is like, what was kind of cool that I read in Genesis, where it's like when Adam and Eve were, um, like, they ate from the fruit and then God found them. And, uh, it said, like, uh, then they, like, they talked amongst themselves, which is really interesting because it was like, it was like, God, like, did that truly, you can see, like, they are, like, it's like they almost have, like, all right, secret huddle. Yeah. Council. <laughs> Council, yeah. It's like, secret huddle. Oh, think, um, we told them not to eat, like, a billion times. <laughs> What's the Among Us thing called? Imposter? <laughs> no, 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 the, the thing where, where. Oh, emergency meeting. Emergency meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Committee meeting. Committee meeting, yes. Committee meeting, yes. That this, Jesus said the Spirit would bring honor and glory to him. So the Spirit shines a spotlight on Jesus. Jesus shines a spotlight on his Father. And in uh, Jeremiah 33 and Ezekiel 32 or something, God says that I'm going to shine the spotlight on the Holy Spirit. So they, they all honor each other. Each know, you. Is, is, know you. Know you. And I don't think any of them get jealous. In other words, I'm praying Holy Spirit, and the Father goes, ah. <laughs> Not again. You just said last time. <laughs> yeah. so, but Jesus did say, when you pray, pray to your Father in heaven, because he wants us to understand. And the word Father, by the way, is the most incredible word. It's Abba, which translates as Daddy, Papa. It's a very affectionate term. But he's in heaven. So you've got to remember, he's, he's your Papa, but he's in heaven. Yeah. Oh, so, That's crazy. They were Here's a passage where all three of them show up. Oh, let me go back to Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, there, there were two different words for one. There was Yachid and Echad. Yachid means one singular. In other words, 
One, one Sorry. Yeah, come on, say Yachid. 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 And Echad. Echad. No, you gotta get the. It's like German. It's like German. German's got a lot of it in it. Yeah. So, so here's the key. Here in Israel, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, plural. He didn't say Yachid. His God is not singular, God is plural. And it, you know, to the Jews it just meant he's bigger than we can confine. So you would talk about Yachid, apple, but Echad, grapes. So there's a group of, a bunch of grapes. Elohim is, is plural, right? Elohim, God is, is plural as well. So here they're all in one verse. Hunters. It's Tony's. And it's, and it's, <laughs> it's like Raymond's, yeah. right? Yeah. What? So here's the best you guys are doing First Peter, and it starts this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, listen to this, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling in his blood. Isn't that cool? All three of them, right there. Bing, bing, bing. So you are a trinity. Huh? Think about this. So yeah. tonight when I go home, I'm going to open my freezer and there's a tub of ice cream there. <laughs> oh, that's the truth. Oh. And one <laughs> part of me is going to go, oh, I forgot about that ice cream. <laughs> Calm yourself. Okay, I heard ice cream. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And then I'll go, I scream. <laughs> and then a voice inside of me is going to go, you're already fat enough, Raymond. <laughs> so there's a part of me that says, I want ice cream. And a part of me that says, no, you can't have ice cream. And then there'll be a third person that goes, oh, he can have some tonight. Okay? There's, there's, there's often that, that interplay inside of us where your intellect, your emotion, and your will are all at work. You're one person. But you have these three people. Let's just name it illustration, okay? We, we, it's just that, a little way to help us. I learned this recently, and tell me what you think about this. But it talked about how you know people say that the human is mind, body, spirit, right? Donut. Huh? Yeah, like a donut, right? So this is the body. <laughs> <laughs> we're all starving. <laughs> we're all a donut. You're talking about me again. Oh, I thought you were actually trying to draw a donut. I was like, no. how? Did, how? Did, how that was a fight out of the So, mind, and then, right here, and then spirit, right? And before you become a believer, this is your sin nature. Um, and what I think scripture talks about is that we are body, the flesh, and then our mind is our soul. And then the spirit is what's inside. So, we're body, soul, and spirit. So that's another way to think about it, that your soul, your mind, is also uh, part of your conscience. It's what tells you that you shouldn't eat ice cream anymore. <laughs> when you become a believer, your sin nature goes away, and now you have the Holy Spirit, which is actually inside of you. So the body can go away. That's what Jesus talked about. It's better for your body to, to be burned than your soul to just burn it forever, right? Um, so body, soul, and spirit. Yeah.
Okay, uh, man, it's 8.30. I want to respect your guys' time. We got through two questions out of probably about 18, so. We're making progress. We're making progress. That's not a zero. I thought, I thought this was a really good discussion. Um, I would encourage you guys to continue to, to ask questions and to continue these conversations outside of here. This is one thing that I think we spend yeah. uh, a lot of time together and I think it'd be really cool to, um, you know, it's cool to let loose sometimes, but it's also nice to actually have deep conversations. So I would encourage us to do that beyond just this. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Raymond for taking time out of seriously. <laughs> You've done it for Lord. I love He really it. does love it. Really yeah. He really does. But this man is, is here all the time. And just appreciate him. Show him, show him some love, guys. Uh, and thank him. Um, I'm going to go ahead and close up in prayer. Uh, and then we'll be dismissed tonight. Uh, one more thing. Um, I know, like, I, I could say this from experience. Like, we've, we've all heard, like, the continue, like, reading yeah. and stuff like that outside. It's not just, like, a random thing. It's, like, actually, like, like, this is what we have to, like, get to know God. And if you feel, like, passive in your relationship or, like, you feel like, oh, it's not really going anywhere. It's, like, it's like how, like, how much time have you spent, like, learning about God and, like, yeah. how much time have you actually spent, like, praying with God and talking with Him. It's, like, it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's just, like, like that's literally how you get to know Him. Yeah, so, I don't have time to read my Bible. Yeah. It's, like, you, you you check your screen time. time. Other stuff. Yeah. It's, like, what about upon us? Delete that app. Yeah. Oh, oh. All right. Um, thank you guys so much. I love you all. Let's pray. Thank you. Good night. Loving Father, thank you, Lord, so much for um, this collection of people. I thank you so much for my, my friend and mentor, Pastor Raymond, for his wisdom uh, and just the wealth of knowledge that he has. And I thank you, Lord, that he is constantly pursuing you. Um, and I pray, Lord, that he would, you would just bless him, Lord. Um, I just thank him for his time. And I'm so thankful that um, he loves doing this. Um, I pray, God, that uh, you would bless each and every one of us, Lord. Um, we thank you that, that we do have truth, Lord, on our side. And I pray, God, that we would seek that out uh, in our lives, that we would uh, attempt and try and make an, an actual concerted effort to spend time in your word so that we can understand your ways, Lord. Father, please bless us as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>